there was a point in time where Dave caught a guy selling bootleg copies of his bootleg movie. Yeah, I bought one. Basically, I saw the movie adaptation of that comic book and was so enthralled as like a 14-year-old that I spent the next four years of my own life readapting that <laughs> that already brilliantly ad- cinematically adapted movie to VHS <laughs> by, done by teenagers as closely um, adhering to the comic book as possible. Greetings, long walkers. Dave here, hosting solo today, this special bonus edition, uh, Halloween 2018 edition of Long Walk Short Drink. Uh, Normally, this would be a recording night for Palmer and myself, but uh, I wanted to take this opportunity to commemorate the 20th anniversary of my completing the main version, (laughs) I guess you could say, of my student film adaptation of James Obar's The Crow graphic novel. Um, So you can see if you're watching the YouTube video, I'm surrounded by uh, my, well, part of my (laughs) Crow collection, Uh, as well as you can see above here, these are like VHS getting into DVDs and then some CDs and stuff of things I've made over the years. Um, I'm recording this on Monday, October 29th, 2018. I completed the, the 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 cut of the crow that we'll call the final cut. The the visuals have not changed since October twenty first of nineteen ninety eight, and on October thirty first nineteen ninety eight, twenty years ago today, as as of the day this is published, um, I believe I held a kind of friends screening that Palmer would have been at and that he'll talk about, um, and. Uh, I should say too um, that this this is a clip show. So this is I should have said that probably at the at the outset. But this is a clip show of the times on uh, this podcast that I co-host with my friend Palmer, um, where we talk about the my and Jacko's adaptation of uh, of the Crow. Um, so twenty years ago uh, on October thirty first, we had a I had a screening at my house for for friends, a bunch of cabin kids, the. So I'm actually, I'm trying to, I guess, trying to pitch this um, podcast a little bit differently because this, um, though interest is certainly faded, <laughs> um, this uh, this adaptation I did of the, of the Crow is a kind of, um, it's something that is still sort of sought after, not because of me, but because of the the, the source material. And uh, so I'm, I'm guessing that some folks will watch this that aren't familiar with the Long Walk Short Drink podcast, and so I'm going to try to split the difference there and uh, serve both audiences. Uh, so yeah, there was a uh, cast, not cast, it was really a friend screening at my house, but also uh, the WCTV in Wadsworth, which was the place that I found and discovered and edited the that final version. Um, and I think by this time I was working there, uh, but it premiered on cable, on, you know, the prestigious premiere on cable access as well on October 31st, 1998. Uh, also on October 31st, 1995 would have been when I hand delivered the first cut of the crow that I finished as a sophomore. 
uh, that summer is when I finished it. And then we, re- we took pre-orders and released it on, uh, I drove it around to a small town where I, I grew up and, and gave the, here, I'll, I'll hold it up. This VHS, uh, uh, oh, that one doesn't have, uh, so it's got a spine label there. This is a, you know, a lot of this will be audio, but there are definitely some video components. Um, it's a cool sort of, it's kind of falling apart. Uh, and this is a Palmer. I put these together with contact paper <laughs> and, and some glue, which seems to have come apart. Um, but, so on October 31st, Halloween 2005, or no, excuse me, 1995, I would have delivered that to uh, Palmer. And um, so actually what I'm going to do is we'll just try to jump into into this um, into this first clip. And within the first five minutes of our first recording, that w- what turned into this podcast, um, uh, we recorded this in July 19th, 2016, um, uh, Palmer and I are just setting up who we are and how we know each other. And then this, this, uh, and you'll see here, I didn't even realize we were in high school together at the same time, which shows sort of how singularly focused I was on this project at that time. So, uh, without further ado, I'll roll this, roll in this first clip from July 19th, 2016 on episode one of long walk, short drink. This is Palmer and myself. Were we in high school at the same time ever? We would have been. Yeah. Like when I was a freshman, you were a junior. Is that right? Oh man! So you were, <laughs> and that was a small school. So you would have been, possibly like have seen posters for those movies I was making. And oh stuff. yeah, <laughs> no, I remember. Oh, I remember. I uh, f- uh, my freshman year, at the during the morning <laughs> announcements because we had like the video morning <laughs> oh, yes, announcements. Yes. You had the. It was close to Halloween, and you had the commercial that played on the morning announcements. Yeah, and we had to pre-order. So I remember pre-ordering. You pre-ordered that? Oh, I pre-ordered, oh, and then I, I remember it like off to your house. I mean, I was so scared of seeing like people. That was my thing. Is I dropped them off. I think on Halloween, but I just like a paper boy. <laughs> but I didn't. No, <laughs> I didn't no, because this is what you did. You like went. You had a bunch. At the school, and we could pick them up, and mm. I re- or maybe you took the pre-orders at the school, but I remember paying for it, and I was like, I'm really excited for this, and you were like, Oh yeah, I hope you like it, and we were we didn't even know each other then, yeah. but we had a Halloween party with the like group of friends that I was running around with then, and what? that's what we watched. We watched oh your God. your movie, like yeah. So I met Jasper. That a blows my mind. <laughs> so. But also, uh, for anyone that might hear this someday, <laughs> when I was a teenager, um, uh, I, the the Crow came out starring Brandon Lee, and I was a big fan of Bruce Lee, and thus Brandon Lee, and then became obsessed with the graphic novel on which that was based, so much so that I made a, my own home video version of it um, with my buddy, and we made it available to our high school <laughs> in this way, as Palmer was just mentioning. And, and then you like, yeah, yeah God, where to go it, from there, but well, you did the like school version that was okay to sell at the school. And then it's you true. like did the updated version that wasn't okay to sell at the school. And I got yeah, that, that one, one too. But by that point in time, cause you made that after you were out of high school, right? Yeah. I, I finished. So the ver- first version, uh, I remember t- t- giving people the orders on Halloween of t- 1995. And then by, by Halloween of 1998 is when I had finished um, kind of my reworked version, taking the best bits of that and learning a little bit more about movie making and getting old enough to put in um, all of the gritty shit that goes on in that book. Yeah. <laughs> 
but I I just <clears throat> remember like oh man like uh because we were friends definitely by that point because I remember getting the copy of the updated version and like being so like you graduated and then it was my it was the summer between my junior and senior year at that point i was hanging out with the cabin people i was going out to the cabin we should probably explain what that is too i guess yeah at least briefly (laughs) which was just like this you know so in our town you either like drank on the weekends or you didn't drink and just about everybody drank except for this like group of friends that i ended up finding like my my first group of friends that i totally did that scene and i partied out and i did not like what I was becoming and it was like this perfect time in between my junior and senior year that I started hanging out with uh this group of people at this small cabin literally in the middle of a cow pasture because <laughs> uh, if you know that part of Ohio that's pretty much all there is there's more cow pasture than anything else and there's this small little like eight by ten cabin that we would go out to on Friday nights and play music and sit around a fire and BS and just like talk about everything. And just about everybody had just graduated like David already graduated. And then there were like the major contingent of the cabin, the cabin kids were had just graduated. And then I was in this, like there was even a couple that were younger than me, but I was just moving into my senior year and, uh, yeah, that's when we really and I remember even thinking like, oh my gosh, Dave Allman like goes out there and like <laughs> Jesus, he made the he so made nice. the crow. Oh, this yeah, is like, gonna be like <laughs> there was problems. so many like no, there was so many like creative people in that group and it was just so intimidating and uh really were this like group of people that I think that's every click in high school though, where you're like, yeah, if you're not, you're like, uh, nobody knows, nobody knows about us or we're just like on the outskirts. But then when you're outside of it, it's like, oh, everybody knows about that group of people or, or these groups of people. And, but at the time now, see, now this is where, this is the long walk for a short drink. Cause now we're coming right back to the crow. So you were still working, you were working on, oh, that's right. You needed to get time. You needed to get access to. Better uh, editing equipment, yeah. Yeah, equipment that you could get this off the ground and get this done. And through that, that's how you got the job at the public access channel. Yeah, I would go in there to uh, edit. Um, and I had so much to do that uh, I I got to a point where they knew me. And then I asked if I could start coming in like right before they closed and then just work through the night. And, uh, and then eventually just being around because I would do that at least like five days a week, I guess. And, uh, they had, it was a tiny staff. Um, there was an opening and, uh, I, I don't remember if I, I might've just asked offhand, like, could I apply or I don't know, but it was, they knew me and they knew I was capable of doing things and, uh, not, you know, they trusted me enough to have me work there overnight. And they were, they were just like, yes. And then I had that job it was my first wasn't my first job. My first job was a video store, like all movie geeks, but um, <laughs> that was my second job. <laughs> awesome. Um, uh. So there you go. In the first few minutes of, of what turned out to be our pilot episode of the, of the podcast, we talk about this this Crow adaptation that I did as a teenager and how it relates to, to me, but also how I know Palmer and how Palmer knew me. 
and uh yeah it comes up it's come up a few times on the the podcast which is also why another reason why i'm doing this show both to commemorate the anniversary but also just to have a kind of one-stop place for all things crow (laughs) um so uh viewers uh, and if you're listening to this on uh, one of our podcast platforms i encourage you to check out this one on youtube uh, you'll find out why, especially um, perhaps in the next introduction segment. But right now you can see uh, I'm wearing the only official Brandon Lee t-shirt, which uh, I will talk in this next clip about how I came to know about The Crow at all, which of course has to do with uh, this actor. Um, you can get this t-shirt from uh, BruceLee.com. But uh, I thought it was kind of cool that, that that family acknowledged The Crow in this way, even though it was the uh yeah it was ultimately the job on which he brandon lee lost his life (laughs) um but anyhow so i came to this as a fan of his as you'll hear in this next clip from episode 22 uh which was a revenge theme episode um both palmer and i um give you know give our favorite revenge films but also when uh, we invited on uh, my brother who we call moto and uh, and friend of the show and his pal uh, shamrock as well as mr j and we we each talked about our favorite revenge films and why and it was a very long and uh ultimately rather drunken conversation um it was one of the first we did video streaming for and for this uh um this uh, clip show i decided to try to marry the audio to that video which turned out to be more of a project than i would have liked but i'm glad i did it and uh, i'm glad that you can kind of see us talk about uh, our favorite revenge films i mean ultimately we're, i'm just going to feature mine here which of course is the crow <laughs> um i don't think i end up talking about the movie much at all except for first seeing it i end up talking about the book which of course i'm um a great big fan of you can see behind me on the youtube version um i have all of the the english editions and all of the caliber extras and the tundra right here and when they went on to publish many of the different oh gosh like the razor oh my god i don't even know dozens it's really overwhelming got the graffiti designs one here that has the trust obey fear and bullets uh, soundtrack all into some novels and stuff and below here I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten binders. Uh, this was like scripts of the Crow early drafts I was able to find online. Okay, this is not going to turn into my Crow collection. Um, but I did want to sur- surround myself with some of this stuff for uh, for this um, for this recording. And actually, you can see over my, what would this be, my right shoulder, I just slapped some stuff up on this wall because it was kind of bare when I tried to get this bookcase sh- in. And you can see the the famous uh, Eric up to his elbows in blood poster um, and cover of the Tundra issue uh, death. And then um, you can see below that, you can see at the bottom um, here. I'm <laughs> Sorry, podcast listeners. It's hard. I'm looking. Okay. You can see there, that's the cover of the very first issue uh, called pain. And then right up above that, I'll I'll tell you where I got that before I introduce the last clip. But without further ado, here is um with video our discussion from Long Walk Short Drink episode 22 recorded on May 11th, 2017 with Moto Shamrock Palmer myself and Mr. J. Dave, what's your pick? Mine is the crow. 
Oh, <laughs> oh, <laughs> fucking A. That's the crow yeah. back. <laughs> I really have no right to pick anything else. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, do you, I, Dave, you know Dave, do you know? Do you know anything about the crow? Uh, do you know yeah, I a, saw it when I was a kid. I loved it, so I rewatched <laughs> it recently. Line. But that was about it. <laughs> you, right, you, beef, it. <laughs> you beefed up on. You read the Wikipedia page before we record started recording, right? Like, I ch- like uh, yeah, I got it printed out just yeah. in case. <laughs> yeah. What are you talking about? He wrote the fucking Wikipedia. <laughs> I, I know, I know. <laughs> I did used to check the IMDb. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> I gotta go in there and edit that shit. <laughs> yeah. No, uh, what did he say on the one episode? He's just like, I care just under enough to not lose my life to maintaining the JCVD yeah. Wikipedia. Yeah. I that. It's a good thing I got this going I on. Care, I care just not enough. <laughs> I know so much about the crow just because of you, Dave. It's insane. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. That'll enrich all of, the discussion. All of my crow knowledge has be- has come secondhand from Dave. That's for sure. Like, <laughs> and the uh, poster. Well, so for anyone, yeah, and there's the poster right there. Um, <laughs> and by the way, it, it was written by a marine. Oh, Fuck yeah, it was written by a marine, uh, Mr. James O'Barr. When I met him, uh, maybe two or three years ago, he was wearing a. Uh, an army jacket with a Joy Division patch, and that's what you want uh, when you meet Joe Zobar. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> and uh, well, so yeah, so the the Crow is based on an underground comic book written by uh, James Obar, an artist uh, who has that's his main claim to fame, and um, it's a it, it he wrote it as the result of a personal tragedy as a as a teenager, his girlfriend was killed by a drunk driver, and then. He engaged in some very self-destructive behavior. He enlisted in the in the Marines uh, to um, to try to bring some structure to his life, and you know maybe keep the as he says the razors from his wrists. And uh, well, he was stationed in Germany, listening to a lot of Joy Division and The Cure. He he made this sketch, uh, something called uh, Crow, and then and it was a uh, it was essentially this kind of. Um, leather-clad figure wearing the drama mask. I think it's for irony. So it's like a... It's He wears a smile. Uh, the, he wears a makeup. It's, a, it's, it's, it's actually British, I think. Uh, the the three masks of... Uh, it's uh, In America, we just have drama drama and tragedy. But I think in... I'm, this is literally off the top of my head, so I could be wrong. But it's uh, I think in, in Britain, they have... Uh, it's like drama, tragedy, and irony. And so the crow uh, was this sort of central figure. So he was an artist. So he channeled this uh, anger and rage he felt at having someone torn away from him into this, uh, what ended up being becoming this comic book uh, that he that he did as a as kind of therapy, as he said. Um, but it became as he so the 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 premise of the comic is that a young couple is is uh, their car breaks down and and then uh, a gang drives by and on a deserted road and they they rape and murder the girl and they shoot the man in the head and he goes to the hospital with the head injury and as he's kind of in his dying moments he's he sort of seized upon the this image of a bird the crow uh, a crow that he saw maybe flying in the sky when the they sort of suggest that as the torture of his partner, his fiance, they're newly engaged, was going on, that, that he was kind of semi-aware, and he has this like sort of split scar across his nose where the bullet wound didn't quite exit, 
and uh, and then as he's kind of, you know, as he's flatlining in the hospital, he sort of sees this. the The whole thing is this: this crow bird is saying like, "Don't look," trying to tell him like, "You don't, don't you don't want to see this kind of what's happening." And then um, essentially a year later, he comes back from the grave and just uh, seeks out that small gang of five men that uh, that ruined his life and that of his. Uh, his fiance and um in the comics it's told like you don't find that out until like it's a cl- it's a they did a short run in the late 80s it got picked up by basically like he would go into a, he was drawing this just because and then he would he was working on cars painting touch-up jobs on cars in uh, detroit in the in the early 80s and he was going into this comic shop uh, where other kind of comic artists were going and eventually the guy that ran the comic shop started a comic imprint just to put out these books. So it wasn't like he was a That's career awesome. artist or something. He was just doing this so he didn't fucking kill himself. And uh, and then, uh, so it's it's an incredible, it, it is it is a singular and astounding. Uh, That's what I feel like about this show sometimes. Really? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thank God this yeah. show is a little less blood-drenched than that book. But so if you yeah. if you if you're curious about the crow we've seen and like the movie, do seek out that comic somehow. It is uh it is is something to behold and uh it really carries a serious weight with it. It is um, consi- it is considered among comic book fans like a seminal work. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. it is yeah. it yeah. is up in the lines with Sin City, The Watchmen, and he wrote Ooh. one. Yep. He wrote one book. Yep. And everybody talks about comics. They say, read Sin City, read Watchmen, and read The Crow. <laughs> you know, but, I have that. I have that whole that downstairs since I procured my Footlocker back from my old man's place. I think that's down in that Footlocker. I need to go down and dig that out. And actually, I bought. I literally got that. Because of your movie that you released in high school, Dave. Oh, like, I didn't know you have that. That's so cool. <clears throat> so um, my dad drove for Capital City, uh, which was a comic book distributor. And we could order comic books at co- like less than cost. Literally like the cost of the materials. That's what nice. we got comic books for. So like he would get these big promo packs that had like that they would send out to comic book shops that had like pogs in them and like promo cards Ooh, and pogs. Like, and like, I'm uh, sorry, uh, what's a pog? I Ooh. feel like I'm, what's a Nubian? <laughs> it's like oh, shut the man. fuck up, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's a pog. shut the fuck up, <laughs> like, yeah, <laughs> bitch, you almost made me laugh. <laughs> yeah, um, a pog. It's that game that you pl- that where you collected them. They were like little cardboard discs, and you would make a stack and try to slam them. Oh, I think got him to the flip a most worthless hobby that ever existed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made no sense, but everyone was into it. So he, but every week, basically, do comic books come out every week, right? Or every month? Tuesdays. Is thing every Tuesday, Tuesdays? Tuesday, right? Yeah. So every week he would go into work with our order where I got to like just basic. I mean, because I could order a stack of comic books this tall Dude. and it'd be like, Fifteen dollars out of his Dude. paycheck, oh, like you know what I like. So, um, in now let's flip that. This was also at the in the the death knock of the comic book industry, like the the end of the Silver Age, right? Um, right after Death of Superman. So, like I, he was working there right at the time that all of the 
the um, where they would put all of the issues together into one massive issue. Those were just getting released of the death of Superman and the return of Superman and all that stuff. So this is on the like, I mean, he got laid off from that job because the comic book industry like folded in on itself. Yeah. Oh, so shit. what what uh, decade yearish was this? 90s. Uh, so 90, 90s. like 93, 93 yeah. to 95 ish. Yeah, they were overprinting because it was becoming a collection thing where they were trying to print more and more and more. And the, and the supply just ended up being more than they could actually meet. Like, yeah, yeah, they, they totally misunderstood the idea of value and collecting that. The reason old comic books were valuable was because there were so few of them because they were worthless. People threw them away. Um, and so when Death of Superman came out, I mean, there's whole documentaries on this that you could watch. Yeah, I have a lot on been YouTube. One, I'm like, writing that down. With the Death of Superman, that is a new, recent, relatively recent documentary. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking, sorry. There's a, there's a documentary about the movie of. Uh, return of that Superman. Almo- yeah, that, that almost was. happened. Yeah. That was based what on was that. that. Was that called Death uh, of Superman? What is that? No, that was the Return of Superman. Thank I think you. is what that was called. And ultimately, uh, that's what it became. I guess with Brandon Ralph. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. original iteration uh, was t- uh, Tim Burton and Nicolas Cage. So yeah, um, but they they just like Mr. J said, they overprinted, thinking that these were going to be collectors' items, and the fact that they saturated their own market literally devalued them down to nothing. Like. Before I, it's this is a sidebar, and then I'll give mine, and then we can start talking about our movie. Uh, when I went to go to to move to Hawaii, I took that Footlocker to Kenmore Comics in Kenmore to try to because I was trying to get as much money as I could before I moved to Hawaii because I needed to like literally start up as much like from the ground up out there, and uh, I like pulled out this stack that's all like Death of Superman comics essentially and it's around that same time that the Bane thing happened with Batman where he mm, broke his back. his back. Yeah. 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 Um, and so that was essentially, that's essentially all we would order was Batman and Superman out of there. My dad thinks that he's going to send me to college with these comic books. Right. And so I put that stack out and the guy at Kenmore comics is just like, I could put those in at 15 cents a piece in that box over there and nobody would buy them. He's like, that oh, box dude. is actually full of those comics right now. Like it wouldn't do any good. So shit. how did you end uh, up with the crow? Is that where you're working towards? Oh yeah. So, so like I, and so around that time gets to my freshman year, which is when you release your version of the crow. Right. Oh yeah. And just in the, so, in the, in the interest of, uh, Every comic is someone's first comic. I won't get into this too long, but basically I saw the movie adaptation of that comic book and was so enthralled as like a 14-year-old that I spent the next four years of my own life readapting that <laughs> that already brilliantly ad- cinematically adapted movie to VHS <laughs> by, done by teenagers as closely um, adhering to the comic book as possible. And so that's what Palmer's referring so, to. So you don't know... I don't know you beyond we ordered that copy of the crow. <laughs> yeah, I to have at a Halloween school, to cause... have at a Halloween party. Yeah. Uh and you know, I thought about it in hindsight, you did deliver that. I remember you delivering that to my really? house on sunset. Yeah. So That's I came awesome. to the door. Uh, <laughs> I'm so amazed yeah. I had the bravery. And you had that. like you had like a, a uh you had a brown paper bag <laughs> and like you fished out your copy of the crow and you're like Thanks a lot for Are ordering. And I was I like, did? Oh. Oh, yeah. And now this is so funny. This is, this is just fucking shows you how small Ritman is. Right. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah. Holy shit. 
Dave Ullman is on my fucking porch giving me a copy of his movie. Like, that's how cool this is. <laughs> that's like, nice. Oh, uh, so. That um, made me cry a little. Thank you. That's very yeah. cool. I didn't remember that because I think I, I was very stressed about that whole idea of like yeah. dropping things off at people's houses and stuff. That's um cool. so so around that same time, dad's working at this at Capital uh, City distributing comics. And I feel I'm I'm filling out the order form for the week. And I would always look at what what was new, like what reissues were and stuff like that. And they reissued the compilation of all of the pro issues. Yep. The, the Kitchen like, sink press. Yep. Yeah. The like big the big thick edition. Yeah, the graphic novel just, as they call them. Yeah. And and I happened I just put a check mark next to that cuz I was like, "Oh, I want to read this because this is this is what that movie is based off of." Oh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. And uh it it came and it went into the Foot Locker and it literally like I never touched it and I bet uh, I guarantee you it's down there right wow. now and it's pristine like in pristine condition. Right now you need now. to go back to that that comic book guy and go check this shit out. Yeah, yeah. what do I get yeah. for that? Yeah, so, fifteen cents, uh, bitch. If I, if I can find it, I will take a picture of that and tweet it oh, out. That'd be but, great. Like if with, it like, does not say locker. now a major motion picture, that'd be pretty cool. Because they did that yeah. uh, soon thereafter, because it became a very best-selling book after the film came out yeah. in May of 94. Well, that's, that, that really, to me, like, I realized that I like graphic novels much more. I, I loved comics as a kid, and my dad bought me comics out the butt. But it was, I didn't realize that you needed to subscribe to get the story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I'd yeah. be reading these, I'm like, all right, well, what happened? <laughs> and then, yeah. I, then I fell into the graphic novels. I'm like, oh, so it's all right here. Yeah, uh, and yeah. And then when Sin City came out, I went on Amazon and I bought all of them so I could know everything. Because I was so yeah. enamored by Robert Rodriguez and everything. I was like, oh, this is fantastic. Oh my god, this was. I like- and I love that movie. Like I, uh, I went with Dave and Jackson and a few I of us, that. and and. I was pretty much the only one that was like, I, or I felt like I was the only one that was like, yeah, that was really good. And then everybody else was just kind of like, eh, you know, I remember being pretty. And I mean, I remember digging that because that was literally what I was trying to do as a teenager. Like they, they brought that, that comic comic book, but they were able to actually make it look like a look like the art of that comic. It was incredible. Yeah. Those are Marv. Marv is probably the best character ever. Like just oh yeah the uh yeah. Mickey Rourke character Mickey yeah. Rourke who, is just who better so to play fucking... that than Mickey Rourke right no yeah. I remember Dave had this great line he's like why does Mickey Rourke have all that fucking makeup yep. on he's already <laughs> fucked up like that's the, that's what initially that's what came to my mind immediately I was like that's the yeah. only problem I have with that character is like you don't need all that makeup just let Mickey Rourke be Mickey Rourke he's yeah. that guy <laughs> <laughs> he is that guy that's so true. <laughs> Dave, I, I have a quick question. It was uh, certainly. So, I am very much <laughs> in tune with what James O'Barr did with the crow, mm-hmm. like the vis- the visceral part of it, I don't like know. the the extreme nature of the violence and such. Absolutely, I, I'm like okay, whatever. <laughs> Does that make any sense? Uh, no, I'm, wait, no, yeah, say more about that. I'm very intrigued, but I I, I haven't followed just yet. Well, when I was. Uh, I went through boot camp, um, the one of the worst, at least for the Marine Corps and the Army, 
and they showed us a lot of crazy uh, slideshows and stuff um, to try and desensitize us to the Jeez. violence. <laughs> yeah, like, what a oh, I never thought about that. Oh, wow. Oh, my God. But it wasn't like we weren't we weren't aghast at it. We were just like, oh, this is what we're trying to be. This is what we want to be. And this is the we're here to defend our country. This is we're here to do this and do that. But they're showing us, this, hey, this is what they do to us when we go over there. And I was in during I, wa I wanted to be a what's called a 912er. What's that? A 912 912er is uh uh yeah, I didn't even know what was going on. I was walking to class on uh, 911. <laughs> oh, hey, okay. I'm starting so to a, piece it together. <laughs> a 912er is the guy that just all right, fuck you. I'm going I'm going out next day. Next day I'm out. Wow. And I'm like, I'm like, what? What happened? I was just watching one night at football last night, and I think you're saying, what? What just happened? And I, and on my way to class, I stopped and ran back to my dorm room, and I was like, what the shit is going on? I was like, and I wanted to join the military out of high school. I wanted to go to West Point. I wanted to do this, that, other. And I didn't. I waited two years, and then. During uh, during that period, a lot of crap happened, and I was just like, why am I not there? This is what I need to do. This is what I wanted to do out of high school. Why am I not there? I didn't connect with the visceral part until I did or went through it. Essentially, oh. what James L. Barr went through in the Marine Corps, because he, he joined during peacetime. That was 80s yeah. and 90s. Yeah, and he uh, he was drawing combat manuals for the Marine Corps, uh, so that's exactly. where some of the sort of accuracy of his uh, uh, in in the uh, the interesting nature of his uh, his artwork. Yeah, he's not like his comics don't the Crow comics don't look like other comics. Exactly. They have a very singular yeah. style, and it's a very singular voice, and it's uh, he he would call, so I was saying earlier how uh, James O'Barr was said he was writing it to try to channel the feelings that he had over his own uh, personal trauma into some kind of creative force, which is something I relate to a lot. But he was talking about how, for him, focusing all that attention in this way didn't really help. It actually just made him more focused on that rage and pain. And he called the sort of the drawings and the, the process, these like all these little deaths and that it... Uh, maybe didn't really help him exactly it, it more like kind of exacerbated things. And uh, yeah, wow. when you read it, like it's, it's uh, oh man, it's an interesting way that that story moves. Like it, so I, I laid out the plot earlier, but the way that it begins, you just have this, like this character with Spikey's eighties punk rock hair, a long coat and a painted on kind of, uh, harlequin like mask of, of of you know he's got this ironic smile when he's very uh, sad character so it alternates between him hunting street thugs trying to get like cutting the people's fingers off trying to get to these 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 men whose names he heard when they were killing him and his his fiance you know t-bird tom tom tin tin top dollar like these street names and then it'll show him uh like you know, he can just sort of hear the, you know, there's cure, cure lyrics on the page. And like, you can hear that music playing as 
you know, pictures of you or whatever. He's like literally looking at pictures of his of his lost uh, life and and crying. So it's like it's this real like emo thing with this like radically super ultra violent like revenge fantasy, but made kind of you know uh, it's manifest real. on the page. Yeah, and, and so the when the violence happens, it's there's a you know it's an un, it's an independent. You know, it was written not even to be published necessarily. Ultimately, published by this guy who saw this a talent coming into his shop that he that he started up a comic label that went like bankrupt. And ultimately, the third the the final issue of the Crow before it was uh, collected in the graphic novel came out on right. Tundra, the Tundra label, which was the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle guys. But like the other caliber oh, wow. press that initially started to put it out went under because the guy didn't know how to. Mm. He just saw this incredible work being done. So yeah, yeah it's, it's this yeah. like you know people talk about you know passion projects. I mean, this is the epitome thereof. And so when you're reading it, like, and you see the guy crying and like the the crow, yeah, that in the movie and then just in a popular culture, it's not like the it's like Frankenstein. It's not like the character is really the crow, you know? Right. The crow is yeah. the title because of the that fixation on the bird and stuff before. Like the guy's name is Eric, and uh, but uh. You know, it's a little of the Batman thing. He's like trying to strike fear into the heart of the men that he's encountering. He's like, tell these fucking guys I'm coming for them, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so it alternates between that and him like being morose and crying in their old house. And like, he's, he's trying to kill himself, like cut his own wrists. And it's like, yeah. I mean, when I read, when I picked up, so I went to see the film uh, on opening night because I was a fan. This all ties together in a way, actually, <laughs> because yeah. I was a fan of Bruce oh. Lee growing up, as I've talked about. I remember your dad taking us to go see that movie. Did you night. come with us one? Of the, yeah, I went like three yeah. times opening weekend. <laughs> Were you well, on one of those? Maybe you, you, your dad, Jim, Jimbo, took us. Me, Brian, and you the first, the first night, Barberton Theater, Lake Cinemas. Oh, I Yo remember. Jimbo. I, I remember Montrose. Yo, Jimbo! Oh my God! Yes. <laughs> it, might have, it, it might have been Montrose. Yeah, it, it might have been Montrose. I think Montrose. so. Yeah, were people sitting in the aisles? Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, they were. That's yep. the one. I saw it the night before in Worcester, and uh, I, I would, I had it was gone, that full. People were sitting in the aisles. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I've oh, rarely experienced man. anything like it. Uh, and it was similar the night before in Worcester, where. People were painted up in the makeup. I, uh, literally, this is 1994. I'm just a kid from small town Redmond. I'd never seen any kind of cosplay or any kind of commitment to a comic book character like this. Yeah. And uh, I was there because I was a fan of Brandon Lee, the, the star of the film who was killed during the making of it. And I was a fan of him because of his father, Bruce Lee, who was, was, who's, who's one of whose films uh, Moto is going to walk us through. But... Um, so yeah, I was there and uh, so taken aback by the heart of the movie, the, mm. the style of the movie, the you know the the pure sort of raw emotion of the revenge and the simplicity of it. Him hunting down the killers and like you uh, you were right there. And so at the end of it, this dude stands up and he's like, "This movie sucked. The comic book's better. Come get it at my comic shop." And he gives like an address. And I was like, "Comic book? Oh yeah, that's right. It's based on a comic book. I knew that." Oh wow! So yeah. I went to seek out the comic book. I got Did it. Did you go to that guy's place? No, I didn't actually, because I was in Worcester and I lived closer to Wadsworth. So I went to a place in Wadsworth. <laughs> the Rittmanites might remember this place. You could get baseball cards there yeah. as well. Yeah, you know, like, Wadsworth. <laughs> yeah, it's like on the. It, you take what is it? You take basically fifty-seven Ohio. It's like Ohio. You take Ohio all the way into Wadsworth. It dead ends. It's called fifty-seven A. Okay, so there's a there's a little grocery store that used to be on the right. 
in a dead Cardinal end. Market. Cardinal Market. Yep. Cardinal Market. Thank you. And so right in front of that was this place that in the like in 1990 or 89, I was buying baseball cards. But when it came, I knew they sold comics too. So that's where, uh, I, got my, that's where I got my first Punisher comic book. Fucking oh, nice. yeah. So that oh, was I awesome. went there. Uh, and I bought, I don't know if we bought, I think we just bought one, but ultimately I bought like three very quickly thereafter and started to try to film it on VHS. But I read the book in one night. I opened it and all these qualities that I'm talking about, like I was familiar with the movie story, but it like, I read it in one sitting, which is not something I say of anything else. And granted, it's a comic book, so you can do that. I mean, it's a graphic novel, at least so many pages, but, uh, it also scared me. Like I was a little scared at 14 to like go to sleep. It had, I mean, that wow. just, that book got under my skin in a big bad way. And that's why I say about the visceralness of it. Cause it's like, it's just ink and paper, you know, but the, you can feel the trauma and the, the bloodshed and all of the tears. Ugh. And I'll say too, when I met the man that wrote it a couple years ago, like you see his eye. I looked into his eyes. Nice. He, he he knew of me because of my, you know, spending so many years on this and getting to send it to him. And it fans of the book became fans of our little VHS adaptation. So got it torrented and stuff. But um, looking into his eyes, those are Eric's eyes. It's fucked up. And and like oh, the, so, it's shit. a real oh. human being on the on the page. And uh, yeah. Anyway, so so I've talked a lot about the book, but you know, the movie was my in. And uh, ultimately, it was kind of by way of Bruce Lee in a way, too. Yeah, <laughs> so. exactly. Can can I just chime in real quick on your version of The Crow? Um, if it's just nice. Because yeah. I don't, I don't, oh, no, no, it's definitely nice. Um, uh, I, I just don't feel like we've conveyed adequately because I was talking to Double D about this and he was not aware of the depth. Uh, I re so I'm going to give you my perspective of your time with your like with oh, your movie. Outstanding. Uh, yeah. um, Miramax said cease and desist. Oh, they did say <laughs> yeah. cease and desist. Yeah. yeah. I should have got so, that like, one of my visual aids. <laughs> um, so there's that. And there was a point in time where Dave caught a guy selling bootleg copies of his bootleg movie. Yeah, I bought one. <laughs> at a co at a comic book festival. I was oh, like, no, that was, I got that on eBay, but I, I imagine they're uh, at, yeah. I think they are in person. <laughs> um, but I just remember, and like, didn't you send an email then to the guy where you were just like, I already am breaking the rules by making this and you're making it even like that was essentially like the message that you sent like Maybe. and you're making it even worse because you're making like illegal copies of my illegal movie like I like that's very possible I don't remember that specifically yeah. but I wouldn't put it I was it was it was hard for me when I yeah because I I basically when I finished it in 1998 after like four years I did finish a version that I shared in high school but excuse me it was the early days of the internet. And so basically when I finished it, I sent a notifications to the postcards to the people I knew in high school that said, Hey man, I want to see this when it's done. And I would sell it at like cost of the, the VHS and yeah. Clamshell and then, then the artwork and stuff. But then I, I, I had found a few crow sites online. Uh, and I, I sent notifications say, Hey, I made this movie. It's ver based very faithfully on the book. Um, if you're interested, I'd love to send you a copy. 
And so I, I, I did. And uh, so those were the kind of copies that were out there. And then there was a, there was a couple I sent to some magazines, and that's what led to it getting back to James Obar eventually. But, uh, but yeah, and then so once there was like, it, it, it's like this podcast or my music or anything else, like there's blood in the water. Like if people are paying attention to something I put my heart into. I'm like, <laughs> I am, I'm in, you know, it's like, okay. And so I dedicated myself like, okay, I'm make a, uh, something of all this behind the scenes footage we have. We're going to make a little video and a website. And so I did all that. And then Miramax, uh, Crow Vision or whatever, they were still making Crow sequels at the time. So they reached yeah. out to me and I was like, we're oh, suck. cool. They're reaching out to me. <laughs> but they reached out to no. me so the legal counsel could be like, yeah, you can't. You are you have to stop everything you're doing. It doesn't matter. You're not trying to make money. Uh, <laughs> this is our thing. And even if you have like the uh, the box set that came out with the third film in like 2001, there's a little thing in the, in the commemorative booklet that says something to the effect about copyright. And I was like, oh, Jesus, they're talking. To, they're literally talking to me. They're like, <laughs> uh, oh, my gosh. That's so awesome. so I was probably pretty sore at the time at the guy, especially because I had made this like digitally cleaned up. This is the 2000. So I just got access to nonlinear editing. I was able to kind of because we shot on color VHS by fucking candlelight sometimes on on consumer gear. Uh, yeah. So I was able to kind of like make it look as good as possible. A couple years later, there's a there's an edition in 1993 before the movie came out that actually has a soundtrack companion CD where the the lyrics are like a collaboration between James Obar and the guy that wrote the introduction, John Bergen. And uh, I got permission from him to use the soundtrack that they he made to the book for our little movie. So I rescored our movie to his songs written with, with James Obar's lyrics and he had some couple musical like pieces that were not that didn't have it was like heavy metal music uh, and I then, was the musical supervisor for James exactly. Obar I was just about to suggest, <laughs> say that so there was one ballad on the piece and there's a lot of romantic things about this movie The Crow is ultimately a very romantic story about right. someone because the idea in a way is like that he can't rest that he can't rest until this right has been wronged. And so when he's trying right. to cut his wrist and kill himself, like he can't because in the comic, he's just sort of brought back of his, his own will. And they, they invent some stuff in the film as to like some rules about the afterlife. But in the movie or in the comic, he's just brought back out of sheer willpower to, 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 to seek vengeance. And then when he sought, when, when the vengeance has been had, he blows his fucking brains out, and then hopefully he's oh, he's shit. he. They don't show that explicitly, and that's one of the reasons I went to the internet to try to get to the bottom of what these final panels were. But in any event, so there's one ballad, and I needed to help with the romance, and we were gonna try to make it like a legit version that could possibly be shared. So I'm like, well, my brother's a good musician, so I give him the ballad, and he creates instrumental versions thereof to help round out the score Shit. of this piece that uh, literally almost no one has seen this version that was created in 2001. Uh, but it, it's, it's, it's kind of great. Like, our original version had, like, the Joy Division songs, The Cure, all the bands that I knew to influence the texts. Right. But then ultimately we got right. permission to this other music. Um... Anyway, I'm kind of getting far afield. But yeah, like, uh, so Double D, I was fucking into it for a long time. Oh, and then there's documentaries about it, which I would share this stuff, but like, it involves a lot of other people. So it's not a copyright thing right. so much at this point. It's more like, I don't want to embarrass my friends who, who are now, you know. <laughs> 
yeah so i don't know if i'd get in trouble these days to uh try to to share uh the movie but ultimately i i just did you know <laughs> it would embarrass too many people um, i'm at a place in my own life and kind of creative um endeavors where i can take it all in stride and um uh, but I, I I can't imagine that anyone else involved in the production would feel that way. Um, but I was trying to think, and it, and it has been so frustrating to me that uh, the only versions that are floating around um, came from this, uh, the one, uh, what I put together, um, again, YouTube viewers can see in uh, 1998, I put together this kind of clamp, this, like, I got, you know, I ordered the... Uh, one-hour tapes and and made this um yeah this package that i basically as i as i mentioned in the clips sent to people who run crow uh fan sites back then and it developed a little bit of a um, a following and stuff be because of that and because this was um 1998 i mean this is long before sin city and all that that we talk about and it was a it was we were making as close as we could to the book itself um over you can't see it, but I got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven big binders plus, um, and the illustrated script is, is over there, and I, that's the biggest binder I own, and I'm looking at it, and I do, th I think it's a four-inch binder, <laughs> which is basically, I put together my, the two editions of the comic that I cut up and made into kind of scripts, and anyhow, um, but, so what am I, what am I trying, what am I trying to say here, so, Oh yeah, um, I somewhere I have the bootleg. I'm not sure where. So there's a similar thing, that, uh, like clamshell type case, but it was by. I mean, it was someone. I wish I knew where to find that, but somewhere I have a, a bootlegged copy that I ordered off the internet that I think I mentioned in one of the the clips, and you can't. I think it's torn. I found out one time that it was torrented. I know that it's still shared, and it's this rare uh, VHS thing. Actually, I uh, since we started the podcast, some of the other guys, one somebody sent me a uh, a link to a listing where you could buy it for a hundred dollars <laughs> and stuff. So, but as I mentioned there, like in two thousand, um, I was we was gear. I was gearing up to make this. Uh, make it available because I knew people were into it. I was going to, I just made those initial hundred and one of those resulted in my hearing from James O'Barr. I'm sure I'd talk about it in one of those clips or at least uh, was able to send it to him because somebody at a magazine, um, I sent off one of the few remaining copies I had from that one, run of 100. Um, and that resulted in it getting the hands of uh, James O'Barr. So I knew he had seen it, which um, anyway, I think that some of that's covered elsewhere. But yeah, I wanted to share it at the time with um, anyone that might be into it. And so I set up this website, um, jamesobarzacrow.bizland.com. <laughs> this is the uh, year 2000. I was also, um, I was in uh, the organization Cleveland Filmmakers, which I don't, I don't know if that still exists, but uh, I was taking like 16 millimeter film classes and stuff, and I'd have access to things through their operation w where I could look at press kits for um, feature films and stuff. So I put together a press kit uh, really following their, I think it's like 20, it's, it is, it's 20 pages because uh, I just put this digitally online. Uh, so you can't, I'm not posting the movie. That's, I'm not getting to that. But I did, um, there are some things I share with you and so I'm setting those up. But um, but yeah, so I, I, I created this thing um, where I wrote in, in great detail for this um, 
press kit about the making of the, the, the production. And um, at that same time, when I was working at the studio, um, a guy who had seen, I, I, I think they shared with the people that run WCTV are still there, which is awesome. So shout out to the Johns and, and Joanna if they somehow hear this. They were always wonderful to me, and I love that place and those people. Um, but yeah, so there was a guy that my project reminded my project reminded me of this other gentleman who comes there, which again, I'm just not naming, so it's to not embarrass him. <laughs> um, but so he, uh, he came in and, and we met I w- when I was working like overnight, uh, editing the, the, the movie there. And he was interested in the crow at the time. The, uh, stairway to heaven TV series was, I hadn't premiered yet, but I think he auditioned for that or something, or he was showing me some materials and he'd kind of written this script. It was the early days of, well, I mean, I had in the early days of fan fiction, but like nowadays it, there was just not the ease with which you could share things then as there is now. And so, um, anyway, so w- he was still around w- while I was kind of tweaking, um, the movie digitally on the first nonlinear editing system, the media 100. I, had access to through WCTV. And so I was able to kind of boost the brightness and um, uh, digitally mix the sound. And uh, and yeah, I was going to make it and then available through the this website that I was building that said a lot about the production and whatnot. And uh, um, also around this time, I'd been working with the behind the scenes footage, my, my buddy Jacko that co-directed and produced the movie with me. Um, we started, you know, at age 14 and f- finished the version that we're celebrating, I'm celebrating this anniversary of, uh, when I was 18. Uh, so it was a long time and, and he had filmed behind the scenes footage throughout. And in 1999, um, this guy was, who was interested in the crow and coming around WCTV, he actually, his nickname was crow, <laughs> which I guess uh, we didn't call him that, but, uh, I think it's fine to say Charlie, whatever. I'm going to call him Charlie. <laughs> That's his name. Uh, but so Charlie was making, he wanted to make a documentary about the the crow and maybe the crow phenomenon. Cause by this time city of angels had come out, the TV series was coming out. It had become this cult phenomenon, pop culture phenomenon uh, and goth and all this was um, in, in vogue at the, at that time. So he um, wanted to use our production as a means to explore the crow as a larger thing. I think I talk about this one of the clips, so I'm sorry to repeat, but I'm setting up something that I hope will be a kind of a, a boon <laughs> for, for people interested about our production. And for me, honestly, to be able to share something. But so he, he I sat for an interview with him, uh, I think two days, cause he didn't cover everything he wanted to. It was long, like three hours. It was like a long walk short during podcast. <laughs> uh, and then we interviewed, um, or he he rather interviewed uh, my my, uh, my buddy Jacko, and he was going to use this as this stuff as the basis for uh, this documentary that I think he was just calling oh he was calling calling it Dust and Bones, and he made um, he was making soundtrack music and we were going to kind of explore we 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 did like the first like two minutes I was going to help edit it and there's a little bit of background on on the crow and whatnot, um, I think. That fell by the wayside. I think we talked about it in one of the clips, but actually, he ended up working on a movie that Palmer was going to star in, <laughs> or and did. Like they filmed it, and ultimately, he did finish it. And uh, this now, yeah, I don't want to say too much because, um, um, yeah, for reasons that I won't get into. But, um, so that took his focus. But I, I now had this thing with the, uh, 
the the interviews and all this behind the scenes footage and so i use this as a uh, opportunity to make uh, a behind the scenes of our our production and um if the if making an adaptation of the book was like my film school my four-year film school which in a lot of ways i, I could said to be that um this next phase that i started kind of in 1999 exploring documentary work really fed a lot more into what i now do for for a living but um it was difficult to make a documentary about myself that was the first time i did that and something i've gone on to do quite a lot actually about various things but um ultimately what i ended up doing is transcribing the uh the interviews i typed them out and then i was able to deal with them as text and that went into this press kit, which so you can uh, download this press kit and read the production notes that I wrote uh, at my website. I just posted this today, um, so it's davidalman.net/slash/thecrow. Uh, it's U L L M A N. davidalman.net/slash/thecrow. And so if you go there, you can um, see some see a few photos, pretty much of me, because again, I don't want to embarrass other people. Though there are a few extra photos in the press kit if you download that, which you can do for free. And okay. Um, saying so much but ultimately uh i created a half hour making of that's very much use using those interviews to narrate the piece and so i'm going to include that here buried in the middle of this podcast that pretty much no one listens to you can see this thing that i really wanted to share in 2000 um but in uh, basically i finished the website all of that finished this documentary in may and um (laughs) <laughs> and I and we even had uh, I ordered ninety minute tapes and we had you can see here on YouTube it says now including a behind the scenes featurette because this was like DVDs were new then and if you were still getting VHSs a lot of the supplementary materials that they were putting on DVDs they would put a shorter version of on on VHS and so I remember one of my favorites at the time was for Taxi Driver uh, and I used uh, that as a model for how to trim like a longer thing like what did they cover in the half hour version and so so I made this half hour. Um, thing called uh we called it remaking the crow and it is the what i'm going to share with you now um uh it um it really focuses very much on how we made our movie and uh as i said i was in cleveland filmmakers at the time and and had this kind of film community to learn things from and i was making 16 millimeter shorts and i showed this at one of our gatherings and was surprised that what people were uh, most interested in is not, they didn't care about The Crow. Um, they were interested in how these like 14-year-old kids spent four years on this project and basically grew grew up and grew into little filmmakers. So once I was then shut down, I got the cease and desist letter, like right, um, I think I was looking at it, I had it up, uh, what the date was that, that they wrote that and I would have received it um may 25th 2000 so right around the time i'd finished all this i got a letter from crow vision council saying uh we appreciate your enthusiasm as a fan of the crow or while we appreciate your enthusiasm as a fan of crow we still cannot and will not authorize or endorse the video in any way as you have requested as it infringes upon our copyright please understand that we have invested heavily in the crow and more importantly have devoted the considerable time devote a considerable time and energy of our employees and creative partners to create the crow films and crow related material. Therefore we demand that you cease and desist all activities relating to the production, distribution, marketing, publicity, or any other exploitation of the video. Please take this letter seriously. 
as we will be forced to seek all remedies available to us under law if you do not comply with the foregoing. Ooh, yeah. Oh, man, that bummed me out. So I had to stop everything and could never sh- uh, share this thing. So um, I'm going to share it with you now because it also, you know, beyond embarrassing other people, like to, to watch the our adaptation now, even at the, the last version that I sort of finished and rescored in 2001, you can tell that we're teenagers and there are parts of it that, that hold up and are kind of cool, but it's not, you know, <laughs> this, this documentary, I think, however, is pr- probably the best, most digestible way to share any of that. And at the very beginning, there is like kind of a retelling of the, of the story that I borrowed. I'm trying to find the comic. They were, were going to publishing Crow comics regularly at this time. And there was issue zero. Where is it? Here it is that they were calling uh so kitchen sink was a publisher back then just they were using jay ovar's the crow which actually is what we called our 1995 adaptation and of course a way to distinguish it from the film version but in the opening this is issue zero um i don't know if it says when it was published i think in 1996 or something but it starts with this love letter type recap written by ovar and with this montage like um redrawing of the events of the original story that they were then kind of taking on to include like other people being uh, brought back by the crow and making this mythology out of what was once this closed story so i under uh charlie's suggestion and guidance he had me read this love letter i think i probably just read it holding the book and he was going to use that in his documentary so i basically read this once um and that's what you'll hear. I, I actually ended up using that in this documentary. So this this documentary is definitely it's meant, you know, it was to accompany the movie. It's it presumes a certain familiarity with the source material, which of course I'm guessing, well, I mean our podcast listeners probably don't have, but are given throughout the clips in this um, in this this podcast. But anyone coming to this because of their interest in the crow is going to know a bit about it. Um, and uh, yeah, so I basically I read the love letter once. And, um, it came out kind of good. And, uh, I basically took, I tried to create the montage that Obar did, uh, here in, in pen and ink and use our material, um, from our adaptation to, uh, illustrate it. So it's, I was watching our, our, our version last night and ultimately my, most of the cool shots made it into this or this documentary. So I'm glad to be able to share this now. I hope uh, it doesn't get <laughs> discovered. I, I mean, honestly, this is our story, so I don't think it is uh, copyright infringement at this point. And ultimately, once I learned that what people were interested in was our story, um, you know, objectively outside of the crow, I spent another year or so building out using more of the behind-the-scenes footage as documentary footage to kind of tell that story. And that that story, or that I called it inertia, remaking the crow, and uh, that premiered at uh, the New York Film and Video Festival in, on February 15th, 2002. And that has too much documentary stuff. Um, that I feel like that would embarrass some people, so I'm not uh, going to share that. But I think this is probably the best thing, again, to share. Um, I think... Uh, I don't think it's going to be ready by the time I publish this, but uh, soon thereafter, there will be a page on my site devoted to that documentary that maybe I'll have some clips or something, but um, certainly a write-up of that premiere. So if you go to davidalman.net slash inertia, um, you can see whatever I, you know, 
share there. Again, it's not going to be the movie. Um, but yeah, so I will share this this 30-minute documentary called Remaking the Crow that um, I put together uh, based on those interviews that Charlie conducted and it and thought it'd be good for the podcast as well because it's, it's a very audio-heavy, I mean, uh, experience. So if you are a podcast listener and you are listening to this and curious to see, like, you know, the visuals that go along with it, um, you can go to this very same point uh, in the in the YouTube version and watch it. But uh, please don't um, don't rip it and otherwise distribute it to others. For the love of God, don't bother the people, anyone you recognize in it. Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I don't think that'll be an issue. So, like the people you hear talking, basically me and you hear Jacko, and uh, I think actually Pumps, fans of the uh, podcast, will recognize Pumps kind of being his being a little ironic and silly about um, when he was asked to do some disturbing stuff on camera. Um, but yeah, so hopefully you'll get a kick out of this. I'm glad to have this uh, opportunity to uh, share it with you. And then I'm going to come back for, to introduce one more segment uh, after this, which has to do with when I actually met James Obar, the author face to face in 2014. So without further ado, sorry, this is a long rambling introduction to this. Uh, This is from 2000 uh, remaking the crow. One million years ago, God sent me an angel. She was everything to me. She was my day and my night. She was my soul, my breath. She was my reason for living. One million and three years ago, the devil took her away. My angel's name was Shelley, and we'd just begun to build our lives together. We were to be married. Then the shadows fell, and the demons laughed, and the tears of God fell like rain upon the garden of pain. The flowers of sorrow bloomed, opened their bleak petals to bathe in the trauma. I heard so much inside I need to let it out. I want the physical pain to match my soul's torment. I cut myself with razors, throw myself into broken glass. I suck in bullets like cigarette smoke. The devil's children had names. Tintin, T-Bird, Tom-Tom, and Top Dollar. And now I'm an unstoppable machine of death, spreading a hideous fury across the heavens like some medieval plague. I'll not stop until they're all in hell. I'll kill them all and everyone who shares breath with them. I have no mercy and ask none. I'm a monster who kills monsters. Shelly taught me to laugh, to dance, to live, and to love. She's what I waited my whole life for, and they took her away. My only joy left is to watch them die, slowly. It was just a random act of senseless cruelty. Nothing personal. Wrong place, wrong time. Victims of circumstance. A broken down car on an old road. shadows. My God, the shadows. Pure evil came to life with such brutal conviction, like a steamroller was unstoppable, a hurricane of torment that tore our lives. Shelley, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. 
There was a loud noise and a dull pain in my head, and my body went numb. I couldn't move. I could only watch those unspeakable acts were performed as those demons took turns. I'm so sorry, baby, so sorry. The black birds said, don't look. And I killed them all for you, honey. Now my task is complete. We can spend eternity together, princess. I love you, Shelley. Eric. The first images I remember seeing of the crow were little bits of press in Entertainment Weekly um, reporting on some of the troubles that they were having. I remember a quote from that saying, you know, one of the guys said, you know, this, you know, this is not great, but this is nothing. I've been on sets where people died. And then a few weeks later, he, uh, the, they had their cover story, Blood on the Set, it was called, and uh, had a picture of Brandon on the front and an article about how, you know, how he was supposed to have died. I remember being aware that it was a comic, but for the longest time I could have cared less. It was almost a year later that I saw the teaser for the movie coming out. I just thought, wow. I remember the image of Shelley walking towards him that would appear at the end. And I remember the image of him flying through the glass, um, uh, turning upward. And it was just all to this choral music. And uh, it just it piqued my interest. So I was really excited when it was coming out. And uh, I was about 14. Uh, and it came out Friday the 13th, I saw it Friday the 13th, May 94. And when it started to, you know, when the credits came up, that Miramax logo and Brandon Lee's name stuff, people were cheering and they cheered all the way through as he would kill the, kill the various thugs. And it was just this incredible experience. Most I remember everyone's reactions. Everyone's just loving the movie. Everyone's clapping and cheering and some guys screaming where uh, screaming about the comic book, how the comic book is better. Like, you love that? Read the comic book. I remember just thinking, wow, you know, I gotta get this comic or, or anything to do with this movie. You know, I remember getting the soundtrack and soon after that, I got the comic. It's not just an ordinary book, there's this presence. I mean, you pick it up and you can feel the, the blood in it. And there's also this whole world created. A world where some guy could come back to life but uh, they may seem realistic, but it actually could not exist. I can't remember how it came about or whose decision it was that, oh, well, you know, instead of just redoing it, which is silly because it's such a wonderful movie that we couldn't even touch, uh, that we would go uh, from a different angle and take it from the comic. And I, it might have been my idea because I don't know that Matt had ever read the comic at that point. I thought, well, that's a way, a different way to approach it. That way we're not just redoing what had already been done. And we were 14, 15, and we didn't expect any of it to be seen. It was just one of our home video movies. This is David Allman. He's working now on the set of The Crow. This is a uh, little freak we found. We decided to make okay. him Jones Street. And hey, so you walk the in. star of the show. <laughs> we started filming in the summer of 1994, and we it would take like members of our soccer club team was what we did for the most part and uh, in doing that I mean our intention was to film it that summer and be done with it we thought that'd be a long time to work on it and um, 
it's hard. To, it, it was hard to get somebody to be on the, you know, just to get a hold of them to film for that day. And so we weren't really anywhere near completion come fall. But it, what was nice come fall is we were back in we were back in school then, and we had sort of a a student body to draw from, or we had more friends that we saw on a regular basis that we can s see that day and say, hey, can you film with us tonight? And we just sort of took what we could get in that sense. And, it, you know, nobody's really interested in acting. These were all just goofball friends of ours. We only need one. I got publicity, man. Yeah. Go away! <laughs> okay, we gotta right, When you're getting people to volunteer for something like this, the basic thing is just you gotta get them motivated. And, uh, for the most part, they did fairly well, but I mean, these guys are just friends, and so they're here just to fart around. They think this is fun. We're just hanging out. Cool, we're going to be in a movie. Well, to us, though, this is serious. This is something we've been working on for a long time. We'd like them to do a good job, which in the end, they did. But I mean, it is kind of hard at some points to get everyone kind of on the same wavelength as us, is that this is kind of serious. I know we're all having fun in games, but we'd like to do this well. When you have guys that aren't involved with it like that, it's, it gets hard sometimes. We wanted a physical role for Matt, and so we came up with the Skull Cowboy thing, where he would, and it also solved the problem of who was going to utter the bird's lines and the bird's role in the book. We sort of married the crow in the comic to the Skull Cowboy role in the film. It was both something to give Matt screen time and also a necessity because we couldn't get the bird, and also a narrative device. He also is the like the all-seeing narrator in the movie. Still, so still in the city tonight. Twelve o'clock ticked hot, and all that is good slips away like a being dog in evil centrifuges into a whirlpool. The book is very localized in Detroit. And, well, for us, we couldn't go to Detroit. We didn't have, we knew what the feel of it was. We knew it was to be this urban Gothic piece. And coming from a small town, that was kind of difficult. There's a, a very industrial section of town where there's a salt factory and a packaging company. And that sort of became our backlot. The only thing we had problems with actually doing location is the fact that you are not on a set and you're not on location where people know you're on location filming a movie. You're just in some public place and they think you're fighting. I mean, you got some guy dressed up in this crazy ass makeup beating someone and then just between two buildings, they don't know what's going on. I mean, they might not even see the camera. They see two people fighting, so they're calling cops. Cops are coming and talking to us. We talked to so many cops. And uh, that's just the problem, is the fact that we have to deal with people who don't know what's going on. People driving past, looking at us, people like wondering, people asking us, bothering us. Just things don't account for the weather, I mean, raining when it's not supposed to rain, raining when it, we have to rain, and not raining, and just, that was a pain in the ass. This is a rainmaker. There's not much, anything left in this, I don't know how it's gonna look. Woo. That's basically all it is. 
we didn't have everything planned before we went on to the set. We had a couple of things planned, and it wasn't in, in consistency with the rest of the picture. It was just kind of one day at a time, and then with little attention to detail at first. And then we sort of had to make up for it along the way. We're serious about it to a point to make it good, but not serious about it to take the time to make it good. We just got whatever we could and got whoever would be an actor. We, uh, we'd finish something just to be done with it. Then be pissed off that wasn't good and redo it. When I, if we just took the time the first time to make it good, it would have taken four years. Go away, we're closed! Ice cold, there'll be a lot of different kinds of... Go away, dirtbag, we're closed! Mr. Gideon, I believe you have something in mind. The look of our Eric wasn't that from the comic with spiky hair and sort of feminine features. It was from the Brandon Lee movie with sort of more stylish long hair and uh, the leather coat and tape around the waist and stuff and it was just uh, it wasn't it was just me being Brandon Lee for the most part or just it was too much from the film. The whole point of doing the movie was to do it from the comic book, and here we're just taking scenes from the movie that we thought were cool. I remember telling Dave, because uh, for the longest time, it's bad enough that he looked almost exactly like Brantley. I mean, it's not hard not to with the makeup on, but he had like the right here, but he was actually talking exactly like Brandon Lee, which is kind of neat if we're doing, you know, a complete movie from theirs. But the fact that we're trying to make this our own, I actually told Dave a couple times, like, kind of cut back a little bit, try to just become yourself or just talk your own way as opposed to just imitating Brandon Lee. I started to read about method acting, which deals a lot inwardly, like manipulating your own emotions. And I, th but I, th I think it carried, I mean, there was a period where probably on purpose, I really let it affect me and it became the, you know, just I was I was going for this method acting thing. I thought it was I thought I think I thought it was cool, and it wasn't trivial uh, to me at the time. And I couldn't live the part on the set so much. I mean, I could maybe a little you know try to do it during the take, but I mean I had to keep the production together, so I couldn't be a basket case on the set. But I let myself be a basket case in the rest of my life. <laughs> sucks. <laughs> we are having fun. We've done. These scenes like three times already. No, we're gonna be doing right, three times. We have 92 pages left to film, so we are. We're over half done. This is nice. We filmed 113, but there, there's other stuff that we haven't done. Or there's stuff that we have done that's not booked, so we haven't done this. It was definitely stressful. I mean, it was almost like a job at some point, because. Uh, I would like, I'd wake up in the morning, I'd get my stuff together and I'd go down to Dave's. This is what I did over summer. I'd go to Dave's and film a movie. And a lot of it just ended up not being fun. Tonight we're hopefully filming up at West Hill. Hopefully. <laughs> There's a great big massacre at the end of the book where uh, all the final bad guys finally come to uh, confront Eric and where the huge thing comes out and where he ended up killing everyone but uh, T-Bird stuff like that and we were gonna film this as much as we could. I was a athletic trainer at the time, a student trainer for the football team 
And I recruited a bunch of guys I knew that were on the football team. And I probably handed about 30, 35 flyers out to people, and they're like, okay, yeah, you know, I'll be there. It's like a Saturday night. And when, when the time came about, I mean, we had a lot of, we'd, you know, we'd actually had a story conference. We sat down, like, because it was a big thing, we're gonna have a lot of people to deal with. We're like, well, let's try to work this out so we know, we know what's going on when we get there and what to tell the people. And only one person out of those 30, 35 people showed up. I can understand people not wanting to do it, but the fact that they told us they would. The fact they would said, okay, I'll be there, I'll be at this time, and the fact that it is wouldn't, for no good reason. When such a magnitude of people didn't show up for something that was had this planning into it, we just decided to hang it up, and we boxed everything up, all the props and stuff, and took it up and put it away. It was definitely a little bit of both of relief and disappointment, because you'd like to finish it, spending so much time on it, you want to have the finished project, say, hey, this was all for something. But it was also a relief saying, hey, I don't need to mess with this anymore. This was in November of 94. We'd been working on it since June when we called it quits. And by the end of the night, we we're well, we'll start up again after Christmas break, after we get a good space in between it and finish it up. And so we did. And then we, uh, we filmed some more starting in late January until we actually shot the last thing we needed on the same day a year later, 1995. Then we had to go about editing it together, which what I was gonna do. And all that we could come up with was using the camera that Matt had been using to film behind the scenes footage, his home camera, with a little um, equalizer enhancer in between to take the color out and to do some of the sound stuff. So I just set up this thing in my room in the late summer and put it together. The finished product wasn't it didn't look very good, and I wasn't really nuts with it. I mean, at the time, we were just glad to be done, but it kind of grew disenchanted with it after a while, learned some more tricks and started up again. I kind of was surprised that Dave wanted to go back and fix it, actually. I mean, when you're done with something, you're obviously going to have a few things left you want to fix. You're obviously not going to be completely satisfied if you are a true perfectionist in the name. But to actually, I, was, I guess I was surprised to actually go back and redo it. So uh, I think I was, I was satisfied with it. I thought it was good. I thought we did an excellent job. From the initial shoot that we took a year to do and that we put together into a finished product, over half the movie that you see now is still from that. And we, you know, we decided, well, well we're going to refilm some things, make Fun Boy more in depth, just try to generally make it a little bit better here and there, augmenting this footage. I think I was still involved with it for a while but not very much. And just slowly, within a few days, maybe, <laughs> just got away from it. Just, I just didn't have the time or the care. I was done with it, I wanted to move on. I need something else, I need change. It just became more and more personal to me. I mean, I saw something in it, or enough in it, or I felt that there was enough good things in it to sustain my interest. I think I understood that he was more serious about it, so I'd kind of step back and let him do stuff. But you won't be able to move. Yeah. I knew that it was his thing, so I would step back. And... You are alone! It's all about me now! Not you! Not anybody else! Me! <laughs> I think I made it fun for him to work. If it wasn't for me, it'd be just probably pure hell. In the initial shoot, it was a collaborative thing. We were both bouncing ideas off of one another. I mean, I might have had the stronger vision of how I wanted it to be, but he really kind of kept me on track. 
and would really help out in a lot of ways. I mean, it was really more of a, uh, a joint effort then than it became once he grew disinterested. Can we use friggin'? Yeah, we use that quite frequently sometimes. <laughs> you guys ever use flipping? Flipping? Yeah, that's <laughs> a good one. This freaking gets older. What the flipper are you doing? There was no cursing in the original uh, cut of it. And we were just, you know, we'd finished, we finished it when we were 15 years old. This one I knew, the finished version I knew would take a little bit longer. That I'd be, you know, around the time graduating from high school by the time it was done. And so we were like, well, you know, to hell with what our parents might think. This is me talking more so than Matt, I think. I wanted to do it as it is in the book, and that means doing a death scene. The death scene at the end where the actual rape occurs, we didn't touch it off for the longest time. Because at the time, we were 14 years old. For a while, before then, we were making movies. They were just kind of cheesy movies that we could show to our families and show to our friends and stuff like that. Well, now we're talking about movie has serious matter. Like, we can't film rape. Come on, we're 14. Theoretically, we're not even supposed to go to see movies like this, let alone make them. So no, we can't do it. We'll find some other way to do it. So we just didn't do it. But then after we redid it, and by then we're a little older, and Dave had lost all sort of like morals or whatever. We're putting whatever we gotta go in it. I think that is also why I kind of backed off from it because I just don't like. I didn't want my family to see this. I didn't want them to know I was associated with this. And the fact that we we're gonna film rape, I was like, no, I'm not touching that. But uh, I think we approached it fairly well. Is that most of it is just implied. I mean, you see their reactions, the guys' reactions, but you don't see any of the actual stuff. And I wanted it to be terrifying. And also, when you don't show everything, it's kind of a li little bit more frightening in ways if you got the sound in there or something, and it was just sort of a marriage of all of those elements and showing little bits and snippets here and just trying to make it feel like the chaos. And I can, you know, watch the scene and read the, I mean, it's the one scene to me, I think, that feels the most like the comic. When I re read that scene in the comic, it's, I can't separate it from our, our little retelling of it. Okay, try it again. Can you fix it? Not here, I can't. I went panel for panel and I had to, re you know, I just would draw squares around it to reconstruct it so that it's more the shape of the screen that we were dealing with. And I thought, well, we'll just go about it this way and we'll shoot, you know, if we have to, one person at a time. I can always be there, fortunately, I'm Eric. So I knew we always had uh, access to me. And if we could get just one other person there at a time, at the bare minimum, then I think I think it would be okay. And it was like, I used the book as our storyboard and I constructed it like I have it page by page. Okay, this is what could happen if we can just use Rick today. He filmed like one guy looking through one window, and then the guy would look up, hey, T-Bird. Then three weeks later, he'd come across another one of the bad guys downtown, and so he'd drag him down to this place at night, and he'd film him looking through another window, looking up, and he'd film his reaction talking to someone else, and he able to sort of intersperse everything together when, in fact, he didn't have more than one person. One day, he'd have one bad guy. Next day, he'd have another bad guy. One day, he had Shelly just doing her reactions and somehow put together, it looked like they're all kind of there together. Holy shit, I can see a black burn. What are you doing? I don't think you left your head, man. Hey, you motherfuckers got to raise the wall? Come on, let's get out of here. Come on, bud. Give me a fucking minute. She ain't exactly responsive. <sighs> it was a dark night on Rawiga <clears throat> Dark night on Rawiga Road. <laughs> yes.
a gentle rain was pouring. Not really. <laughs> from the pumpy spray thing. From the, uh, that was the rain. <sighs> they told me to lick the window. So I did. They told me to rock the car. So I did. They told me to pretend there was someone in there that I wanted to rape. So I did. You know what that did to me? Funboy in the comic was sort of the T-Bird of the Miramax film. Like in, in, in the Miramax movie, T-Bird's going around quoting from Paradise Lost, which is something that comes from Obar's text in that scene where Eric finally, after three encounters with Funboy, has decided that this is it. He's going he's gonna to kill him now. Funboy, I can't give you absolution. In a few moments, your sins will be between you and God. Have you read Milton? Yeah. Lisey. Yeah. I've been waiting for you. It's that time where Eric's realizing what he's becoming, that he's becoming no better than these men. And he sees in Fun Boy, um, he sees an understanding. Fun Boy understands what he is. And, uh, understands his own evil. When boy you're crying was the most important because it was in cold blood. It was the act of a soul which having long ago destroyed everything within itself accumulated immense strength. And this. This can be completely identified. The acts of total destruction soon to come. You were dead from the moment you touched her. Eric realized that Funboy's soul was lost, and there's no further evil that could be done upon his soul. He wasn't a being at all. He was a mindless vessel of evil, and to the point where, you know, there's no harm you, you can do to a person like that. Let him live with himself. Let him realize what he's done and then let him see that he has no remorse about the crimes that he has committed. And Funboy realized that before he died. I found uh, a public access studio in Wadsworth, Ohio. And uh, that was where I ended up going to edit the final version. After editing three r rough cuts at home, I would come in just as they were about to leave, uh, just as the last person was leaving at night around nine or so, and I would stay till maybe the, you know, the next appointment in the morning. Once I finished that, I'd come to realize that I wanted to do a lot more with the sound aspect of it. And so I took quite a few months just on doing what amounted to location foley work. I went around to, I mean, if whether it was my attic basement or one of the locations we shot at, and, you know, took along a ham and a melon and whacked them both and tried to combine the sound. Or, um, you know, I actually even took the approach with the music. Um, if there was going to be music, you know, coming from a, a radio or a jukebox or a car radio, to go to the location, blast the music, use that music instead of a clean from the 
LP cut, I would use the on-location sound of it so you could get that, um, the ambience, to create the ambience. I tried to create this like sonic ambience to go along with this dark v visual scheme of the movie. educated I became about the novel, the graphic novel, the more I realized that, I mean, its roots are really in reality in the way that the urban city was. I mean, discarding the supernatural element of it. That and the music of that time that he was listening to. All the mu music in the movie has some sort of, I think, reference from the book, whether it's actual, like, its title of a chapter, whether it's, like, a quote Eric says, whether it's a poster behind the wall, somehow Dave was able to find that and take it all and put it in the movie. We could have easily picked songs that people have known. We could have got the cool MTV thing, or we could have taken songs directly from the actual Miramax movie, which I think we did at first. But I think I, I like it a lot better, the fact that we took the songs that Obar was listening, that Obar put into the comic book, either just unconsciously or consciously, and actually put them in the movie. It's not your Biff Wham Pow type of comic book. There's a lot of poetry as narration, a lot of, and there's a poetry to the book as a whole, and that goes along with the music and with just sort of, it's not written as, it's sort of written in verse. The stuff that's not conversational is poetic. It's, the narration is poetry. And uh, it's just another thing that adds to the appeal, but it also brings a great depth and breadth and pedigree to such a plain little revenge story. All these things, they just sort of open it up to something much more than just a, a grim little zombie tale. The themes of it, of loss and retribution and love, I mean, they're very basic human feelings. It's like the ultimate, uh, you know, triumph of anger over adversity is, you know, transcending death to fulfill this revenge and that's that comes from this immeasurable love and i think that's what obar speaks a lot of is this uh his this belief that he has that his absolute pure love exists that he, even death you know has no hold over it and there's a and there's a good violent tale to accompany that to give you know young males something to hide behind you know, but I think that the appeal of it is that is the heart of it, which is the love story between the two people, this very pure and and uh, unconquerable love. Okay, there you go. So I'm going to introduce the uh, the one last clip here, and this is from episode 17 of our show, uh, where 
we first spoke to uh, Mr. J, who you would have heard in the uh, Revenge Show clip. And actually, it was because we didn't get to talk about one of his favorite films, Conan, that the Revenge Show ended up happening. So that, that was kind of cool. But um, at the time, we were talking about um, trailers that were very impactful. And, um, and of course, the you see it actually. I talk about it in the, that documentary, how um, seeing the trailer for this movie... Uh, the Crow, with, uh, starring Brandon Lee, um, yeah, changed my whole life. <laughs> so, uh, so says the course for quite a few years, which I think all comes up in this clip. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and also, I saved it for last for uh, the reason uh, that chronologically it, it talks about uh, it, w- it was this kind of the final piece of the things that have come up and the ways that we've woven through quite a quite a few few years but in 2014 i met james obar face to face he was going to be at a con in minnesota and i don't know i just wanted to see him shake his hand say thanks and so uh, so i did so i talk about that in this clip that is where this uh poster you can see um or this lithograph that my finger is pointing to that is right in the middle of those other two uh crow um lithographs that i slapped up there when uh yeah so i talk about it. it's one of the few that i picked up because i think you really need to buy something at those artist alley things to even to get an audience with with the person and so um so i got that um obar's drawing of uh or not drawing but a full painting of batman and uh this taxi driver uh as well i'm holding it you can see it on youtube actually if you want and I, I knew taxi driver to be an influence in the book for sure because of this uh i got this um you can see one of the crow uh, drawings, but this uh, taxi driver uh, rendering in this sketchbook that came with like the CD-ROM for the crow <laughs> that came out in uh, 1996. Visions. This came with it. Uh, yeah. So my, <laughs> I don't know. I, I've this has been pretty rushed. It has felt very rushed in terms of the things that I was trying to get through, and so I don't know how well I've um, quitted myself or or this topic. But if you want to. Um, uh, reach out to me if you're coming to, I'm, I guess I'm, again, I'm presuming people not familiar with the podcast or maybe podcast listeners that are, are curious more about this project because of that. Again, you can go to um, davidalma.net slash the crow and you'll see the, the press kit notes and as which were kind of 20 page press kit as well as uh, some photos. Maybe I'll post the trailer if I can get it together. Um, but yeah, so I'm not. I can't show you the movie <laughs> again. I'll just say that, um, and I've shown you what I could in this this episode here of uh, of the documentaries. Um, there's a contact form there. You can reach me. Of course, you can always reach us on uh, Twitter at LWSD Pod. I'm on Twitter as well at David Allman, and um, um, you can catch live recordings of long walk short drink every other wednesday on youtube search long walk short drink on youtube and subscribe while you're there click the bell um uh, i mentioned where you can find us on twitter uh, of course you're if you're listening to this as a podcast uh, on a podcast app please make sure to rate and uh, subscribe write us a review that'd be magnificent um tell a friend would it would kill you to, to tell a friend <laughs> about the show someone you think might appreciate it um yeah, I think that's all the main things. Of course, you can get a free audiobook on us if you go to audibletrial.com slash LWSD and, uh, and a, f- a, a one-month trial to that service. Um, yeah, I think that's all the major stuff. So I'm going to roll this uh, this this clip uh, about 
the trailer that uh, changed my life and then how that led into me talking about um, meeting James Obar in 2014. And then I'll be back one more time quickly to just to, to say goodbye and introduce um, the song that we're going to go out on. So without further ado, from March 28th, 2017, uh, episode 17 of Long Walk Short Drink. How about you, Dave? You got any trailers like oh, that? Oh, uh, yeah. Not surprisingly, perhaps. Uh, the trailer that <laughs> this is the trailer that changed my life. <laughs> the the crow. <laughs> oh yeah. Uh, let me make sure I find the right one. Um, I literally my I love this trailer so much that I re-edited it from Elements to have like an SVHS version in the late nineties. Wow. Like, really that makes any sense to anyone. It doesn't make SVHS, sense at all, but it yeah. does not surprise me about you. No. <laughs> and I have I was, good verses. I was worried he was going to say cyborg. That's what I was worried he was going to say. Actually, yeah. you, know, you know, honestly, that cyborg trailer was pretty big for me. <laughs> 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 the trailers. Because for a long time, it was the only thing I was allowed to see of that movie, and it was so exciting. Yeah. All right. Maybe I found one. No. All right. Whatever. Uh, sorry. I'll share the best version I could find. I can't believe a fuck. I'm going to upload my rendition. Now Dave's going to spend the rest of the night digitizing his SVHS copy of his self-cut trailer just so he has it to put on Twitter when this episode That's airs. Right. I can't have this. All right. So click on that. If I just, can. this just created a four hour project for Dave for one tweet. I for swear. one tweet. The crow. Seriously, like how fucking ahead of its time was that movie yeah i mean yeah. like it it's just incredible i think um because i know you dave you've talked about you know um the crow and your passion for it and it, it's when you look at comic book movies i mean this is like i i would still keep it in like the top five of all time comic book movies i'm so glad to hear that because sure. it, it's so often gets overlooked i it almost it is. never sadly it's it's yeah. so underrated, I think, and it's it's, I mean, it's just it hits on all levels. The, I mean, the soundtrack was outstanding. The just the grittiness of it. It was a time when like they they could do a movie that was rated R and actually do it right instead yeah. of like trying to make it appealing for the kids and you know all that tone it down, water it down. I mean, it was a really kind of a um, kind of a, a unique situation for that movie. I think that you know. Um, I that soundtrack was amazing, and I at that time period in my life, I didn't. I didn't have a lot of music. I didn't have a big music collection, but I own that soundtrack. I probably might, because I just brought my Foot Locker home from my dad's. I bet that soundtrack on cassette is in that. Oh, nice. I'm, I'm pretty nice. confident it is. And that soundtrack is what turned me on to like the cure and alternative, like, because an alternative and all that stuff, like that cure song that's on that album is, yep. or on that soundtrack is amazing. Like, oh, is that yeah. Cool? Written for the movie. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's oh. uh, that started my love affair with Nine Snails. That that trailer literally set the next like nine years of my life, <laughs> or, or yeah. eight to nine years of my life, literally like focused on that subject matter. Um, oh. I I can't remember the the movie I I saw the preview at, but I had right around that time, and actually I don't want to get away from the soundtrack too, too much because that's what you can hear in the podcast. The uh, Music by Graham Revell at the end is not gonna not on the motion picture like album soundtrack. It did come out in this in a soundtrack, but um, interestingly enough, the uh, 
from what we were talking about before, if you like me are kind of <laughs> insane in your collectability and your or, or insane in your approach to collecting crow collectibles. I have a work print uh of the movie which means it was, you know, still this is back in the days before digital editing and stuff where it was all like splices, cuts and uh you know you'd see the tape and the film and the grain and, and I don't know how this this edit got out there, but it's a good like half hour f- longer than the movie itself and contains different way different like versions of stuff like i don't know if you guys remember the joke about the raven when he breaks through the pawn shop door he's like suddenly i heard a tapping as of someone gently rapping you heard me rapping right because he knocked on the door in the in the work print that i have he like raps it like a rap song he's like suddenly i heard a tapping (laughs) really yeah awesome (laughs) it doesn't quite work but you get the idea of like where he's you know coming from and then in the early stage in the movie at that point in the movie, uh, in all movies, well, maybe they don't do this as much anymore. I, I imagine they do, though. Before the contracted film score comes in, that you pay a John Williams for or whatever, you, you use temp tracks to get the vibe of like the scene that you want and to also pass along to the composer to, like, this is kind of what I have in mind. And for that movie, much of it was the score from The Last Temptation of Christ. Uh, really? Passion, gave Peter Gabriel. Yep. Wow, and that's when, awesome. When you know that, when you've seen that, when you know that music, it's, I mean, it's a thinly veiled <laughs> like, mm. uh, template for that fantastic uh, score. But that score and those images, I was in a, uh, this would have been 1993, I saw that preview. Actually, I, w- I was aware of the whole thing. I was in a big Bruce Lee phase that lasted last, a good long time, long time in my life. <laughs> and actually, for Tripod Month, the Tri- Tri-Podcast, just yesterday, I tried the Bruce Lee podcast, and I, I have yeah. a feeling that Bruce Lee is going to come back and into my life in a big, bad way. So I can't wait. His uh, that biopic of his is getting ready to come out this year, I think. Oh, There's really? A, and uh, yeah, it um, it's about a fight that he has, like a really popular or famous fight that he has with a Shaolin monk or something in San Francisco. It's oh, like just sure. Like, yes, yes. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? I think I do, uh, and I might know the movie, but I'm not 100% sure. I'll look that up. Yeah, uh, look that up. The This was around, so the, and I, you know, this sort of cycle, uh, you know, we've talked about the cycle of um, love. I called it the cycle of love and theft on the, on the uh, episode, but that, you know, where like people love things and then they start to hate on them. But the, that sort of magic number for uh, nostalgia is about 20 years. So yes. Bruce Lee died yeah. in 1973. And so around 1993, things were really going strong, but they were kind of hitting an apex with there being nostalgia. So there were, that was the year that the, his bio movie that has previously existed came out dragging the blue lee story which is really fantastic mm-hmm. um, yeah i like that too actually do yeah it's a that's a that's a really good one uh i mean and it's pretty heightened in some ways it plays like a bruce lee movie but uh it's still accurate to certain events in his life and stuff and uh very very much worth checking out um but I was very much in that space. You know, I was into JCVD and movie martial arts in general. And uh, in the same sort of WUAB. Actually, Mr. J, do you, we're from Northeast Ohio, both of us. But do you remember WUAB Channel 43? Yep. Yeah. So, yeah. 
That's, I mean, that's responsible for all my <laughs> obsessions, I think. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how I got turned on to like JCVD. Uh, JCVD shortly after Bruce Lee and seeing some of those movies. But, uh, I love how you so, just initial it too. <laughs> oh, sorry, I missed that. What'd you say? I said, I love how you initial it. Like, it's like this thing, like, you know, JPCD, you know, it's, it's just, you know, like, instead of John Claude Van Damme. Oh, yeah, no, no. It's French. You, you guys are like this, you know. It's, JCBD. It's, you yeah. just go straight to the, uh, you know, the, 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 the letters. It's all good. I think his <laughs> wife calls him JC, so I, I figure I've earned it. <laughs> but, uh... <laughs> You're gonna draft his like memoirs it. or something. I swear. I could. Oh my god. You're um, gonna be the uh, shadow right around his biography or something. Yeah. Oh man. You like he did already. Show him the binder. Oh, the binder. Whip it out. Yeah. Oh, I got it right here. Oh boy. Yeah. Oh boy. I need to see this. Hmm. There it is. There's the, the thickness. Oh, my God. There's the cover. Not an actual autograph, but I picked up at a screening. You got to get an autograph, man. You got to meet this man. It's got to happen. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I did meet uh, I um, I did meet James Obar, the author of The Crow. I just. Oh, really? Yeah, I don't. Um, I, don't I didn't actually, even know that. It's only in the last couple of years. I don't actually usually want that <laughs> yeah to meet uh people i just don't know really what i would want to say and i wouldn't want did, it ruined <laughs> did he know of you like did like did you even bring up your movie at all uh, you yeah him, Dave? yeah um so mr j i don't know uh how much of this you may or may not have gleaned from previous episodes but when i was a teenager around the time i saw all this like so let me let me tie it into the the preview and i'll be as brief as such a long story as possible um <laughs> I, so I was big uh, in a br big Bruce Lee phase, like at the time in 1993, and in March at the March 31st, 1993, Bruce Lee's son Brandon Lee was accidentally killed on the set uh, filming The Crow. Um, super fucked up. Like th so that movie is about uh, a, a man who was killed. Uh, he and his fiance were killed, and then a year later he comes back to avenge their deaths. And unfortunately, he. In the real life, the actor, Bruce Lee's son, Brandon Lee, who is portraying the character in the underground comic book, was killed during the filming of his character's death scene. And a year later, uh, a year, a year and two months later, the movie came out. So it's kind of it's it's a bizarre uh confluence of events. But uh and unfortunately, too, his father died young. Um and and then so there's a lot of controversy, of course, around an onset death like that. And I was in a big Bruce Lee phase. I had seen 92, 92, uh, Brandon Lee's big first sort of Hollywood movie. It was called Rapid Fire had come out. And, um, and I, and I dug it. I, I remember like ordering the one sheet poster from Cinna something. Oh, I should look up what that poster company was. I had a lot of posters from them. You could order the actual movie print posters. They cost like 20 bucks, but uh, I had a handful of them. Mostly Jean-Claude Van Damme movie posters. <laughs> <laughs> they probably knew you by. They probably knew you. Yeah. Like, oh, we got this kid again who wants another Jean-Claude Van Damme poster. Oh, it's, a, it's Ritman. Oh, oh yeah, right. it must be. Dude. <laughs> Man, these JCVUD posters are really hot in this small town called yeah. Ritman in Ohio. I know. It's like they only carry Mel Gibson, Michelle Pfeiffer, and JCVD posters. I don't know why. <laughs> 
<laughs> in any oh, event, shit. I was big into it at the time, and then he passed away. I was like, "Fuck!" And I and I remember looking at the Entertainment Weekly I was subscribed to at the time, and there was article about you know what happened on the set, and also this little like panel on this movie that he was working on and the comic book on which it was based, and and it was like. The, the the graphic is the character of of Eric um with his he's like sitting cross-legged and his arms are drenched in blood to the elbows and it's so god damn it that book <laughs> so anyway I was so intrigued by that and then shortly thereafter I saw a preview for this movie and it was that preview of all of those images that you just I don't know. That was a new thing at the time, a, a, a new dynamic that was kind of yeah. It was is brewing, but quite kind of untapped. So I mean, I don't. I love that movie, and I don't want to say anything bad about it. But I will say that as an adult, I really do see it as a combination of this this incredibly original and blood soaked, like heart wrenching soul purging uh catharsis of like actual trauma in someone's life with uh combine that with the cure and joy divisions music uh iggy pop's f- f- uh physical form <laughs> and um oh, yeah. but then the movie is that plus blade runner sort of uh visual dynamic yeah. cross yep. with cross with the book and then 1989 batman um which I, I was pretty close. I was like, do I do the Crow trailer or 89 Batman? I should have done it. 89 Batman to be a shorter story. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really, I just want to know about your interaction with James oh, sure. Obar. Like so that, anyway, that's... but, but short, short story that I was so taken by that. I ended up like starting as a teenager, 14, uh, and I got the book, read the book. Couldn't believe this book, comic book, uh, which is a, a fixed, um, several issue, but, uh, comic book that came out as a graphic novel around that time. You know, shortly came it came out as the movie. So uh, my friend Jacko, as we call him on the show, and I set about like a four year process of doing our best to adapt that movie as closely to the comic book as say Sin City is to that to that comic book years later. Um, even back then, I sent an early cut and some kind of a video message to the publishers, and they sent me some nice uh, handwritten note that came back on stationery. I don't remember what it said. But, you know, as a kid, like, I was no sort of copyright threat to them. Uh, yeah. Right. So they were very nice about it. In fact, I turned the movie in, uh, my first draft of it, as some kind of extra credit English project. And my English high school English teacher marched the, the comic book and the VHS that I gave her back to my desk, slammed it down, and she's like, do you know what plagiarism is? <laughs> I was like, Fuck. So I gave her a copy of the 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 letter I had from Kitchen Sink Press, the publisher at the time, and she didn't flunk me. But anyway, wow. so I, I was engaged in that process for literally four years, and then probably four years thereafter, kind of working with documentary footage. Um, at some point in time, I was sending out like you know you dub VHSs, and like there was a certain amount. You like you, it's like a copy of a copy of Xerox. You know, right. yeah. things would get worse. It wasn't digital at the right. time. And uh, so I remember towards, I got 160 minute, I had to special order them 60 minute videotapes and, and like hard shell clam cases for the artwork. And that's what I had. I took sort of pre-orders, I guess, at the time from people that um, knew me when I was in high school. This was like a year out of high school. I finished the version of it. And I, in the internet, I found crow sites and a few people 
express interest. I'm like, you know, you love this book. This is kind of like this book. And so I had so many to send out. And then I had a few left found for some reason I was sending them to like horror magazines. I really don't remember the logic of this <laughs> other than I wanted to get rid of these and I wanted people that might like this to see it. And yeah. uh, I was working at a video store as you do, as you did in the mid nineties in Ritman, Ohio. And uh, I got this call. Um, it was the weirdest call. This guy was like, he didn't really say who he was. He just started giving me a phone number and he's like, you know what I'm giving you? I was like, I don't, who, what? I don't even know who you are. He's like, this is James Obar's phone number. I was oh. like, what? <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he's like, call this number. You're going to get a message that's, that goes like so. And then leave your leave your name and, and leave my name, the guy's telling me, and say you have this uh, movie you want to send him. I think he should see it. It's pretty cool. So, uh this would have been in the like 98, 99 or something like that. So I did send him that. Uh, I don't remember getting a, a response. I do remember there was something like somebody, his wife called my house or something. I can't quite remember. My sister like took a note on a paper plate and it almost got thrown away. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I remember that. It. Um, <laughs> and then, and then years later, in like 2004 or five, when I had I had like married and divorced and moved back to Ohio, was living in my parents' basement, and was like, I would. That's when I was making the JCVD binder. I was like trying to make make a space for myself in the basement by the, all the detritus of my youth and collecting it in places. And I was making definitive DVDs of this movie that had been shut down by Miramax. Oh God, it's a long fucking story. But um, the, around that time, I get an email from someone claiming to be James Obar, the author of the book. Had you, did you say you, you received this, the cease and desist by this point? Yeah, that was like 2000 <laughs> because like I got a taste. Okay. Oh my God, my whole life. Like I'm like a puppy dog. If you, if you express any interest in what I'm making, especially good fucking luck. Cause I'll never let go. <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, so I, I may, I don't know. I could tell you more about that, but that's not. Yeah. <laughs> we'll do a crow episode someday. But the, but the short. So I think I got an email from him in the early in the mid two thousands. But I'm not sure. That might not have been him. Like he claimed to not have a computer. I don't know. Because yeah. I was at. I made this DVD sort of comprehensive DVD sort of box set for myself. Like I couldn't distribute it. But I right. I was like I refuse to make cover art for this thing after spending this much of my life on it. Unless like he'll do like an actual cover art, like then it'll have an image. Otherwise, it won't. Because <laughs> I think he was oh, doing commissions man. at the time online. Oh, okay, gotcha. Uh, so it wasn't just like hubris. It was uh, I was like, oh, that that makes some sense. And so I think I reached out to whatever address there was and got some sort of response. And it was really nice. It was like I should. You can't pay me. Like I'll, you know, because I think they made him aware of the publishers. And plus, there was the call to the house. Like he'd seen the movie somehow. Yeah. And and I, I you know. I should have done different things with my youth, but I will say that I put so much of my, <laughs> all of my adolescent angst and like real emotion and actual like blood, sweat and tears into that movie that, that just like 
you know certain things that work like there's something about that that is affecting yeah. at least to me watching it because it's me it's like oh god i'm crying no i'm crying for real yeah <laughs> <laughs> i don't know but but it, and it, and it went over well in the early internet with people who were fans of the book uh because it had a similar sort of vulnerable and angry and bloody quality to it um so anyway uh that's all i had like he never did actually write draw me the commission or whatever respond in any way but here i am in 2013 or 14 living in uh the minneapolis area and i see he's coming to a, a convention and i was like huh was i was thinking Con? was it wizard comic-con yeah that sounds right wizard sounds right yeah, yeah. oh wow um, yeah. um and uh and the and the bride is a big kind of uh geek in her own way about certain things and like nathan fillion was going to be there and a bunch Ooh. of people she wanted to see <laughs> oh nice oh, boy but the whole purpose for us was like i just wanted to go um and shake the guy's hand and, and uh just say really just say thank you like like there had been some other um, kind of more recent crow things coming about, and there was ta- the, 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 there's been a new edition uh, version of the movie that I think currently is starring Jason Momoa, um, and even and then, but a couple of years ago was something different. In any event, I went there to meet the guy, and uh, I did. It was a little weird. Uh, he was not one of the people who you had to pay to get like in their vicinity. Right. Mm-hmm. A lot of the the stars, like including Ernie Hudson, who's in the Crow and the Ghostbusters and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, like you couldn't yeah. even stand too close to their booths. Like people would be like, move along. Like you yep. can't look at them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which well, they're worried you're just gonna snap a free selfie yep, with them in the yeah, background. Yeah. yeah. Yep. And and all that sounds kind of shitty, but at the same time, if you think about it, like it does make some sense in sure. terms. I've yeah. heard it t- talked about from like the guys from the the Kevin Smith universe, like the the comic book man the guys that are there on the the comic circuit, they're like, oh, and they're on the Tell Em Steve Dave podcast. They're like, we don't want to charge for our, that's ridiculous to charge for our autographs in time. But unfortunately, because that's the kind of going rate of things, it makes other people look bad if if you don't. It's a kind of, you know, uh, things are the way they are and it's part of how some people make their living. And, uh, but it's a little weird. Um, Yeah. So, But uh, Obar was not at one of those those type of situations. He was there as like a comic artist. Uh, or, that sounds weird to say it like that, but he was there as an, he had an artist booth. And um, so I, I kind of come up to it, but like there, there's a other person there and then him and he won't like engage me. <laughs> and I think this is how it works. Like the person that's selling the merchandise, like the, the sort of lithographs or whatever, you kind of have to buy something to get it, get some FaceTime. Mm-hmm. And yeah. so I think I bought, um, I, he did. He had a, a print of his version of Batman, which I had seen over the years, which is pretty hardcore, as you can imagine. Yeah. Uh, a ver, uh, drawing like a taxi driver, uh, Travis Bickle. And then I think I got a version uh, or, or, or a portrait of the Eric Draven. Or Eric Draven is from the movies, but Eric, whatever as it was from the books. I got, so I bought those three prints. And then I wanted to hand him an old press kit I had from our movie in the VHS and the documentary just, uh, and so I did. And, 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 uh, I, so I, I did the, I purchased the things and I'm like, I just like to give him some relics from the nineties. And I hand them to him and he looks over at me. He's like, are you David? I was like, yeah. He's like, Oh, and he's like, it's so nice to finally meet you and shakes my hand. It was very nice. Very, very oh, awesome. that is, <laughs> oh awesome. my gosh. That is so heartwarming. Yeah, it was. Like, That's awesome. I, I mean, 
I mean, Dave, as your as your buddy and Mr. J, I'm just like I'm just gonna like romance here for one second because like as your buddy, I I have watched for the last twenty plus years <laughs> yeah. your struggle with that movie and that like. I, I could cry right now to know that that happened for you. Like oh, with, that you got that. Like, that's are huge. you David? And like, I'm so happy to meet you. Like that is just yeah, so that's that huge. you broke that whole like thing. Like, I think that, cause I think that is a payoff. I, I don't know like yeah. that man. That's awesome. Thank you. Yeah. It like, was, it was very nice. It was very satisfying. I, I don't, I didn't have an expectation of him to say anything. I think I'd seen yeah. something on the internet of him mentioning, because somebody made a short film out of a short comic strip he did. And I saw an interview from a con, like off to the side, some very rough and tumble thing. And he's like, some guy, some kid from Ohio took like two years to make The Crow into a movie. And and I was just like, motherfucker, it was four. <laughs> 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 yeah. Well, I, to be fair, when you were like, well, that that... That determined the next nine years of my life. And I'm like, nine years? <laughs> no, it was, yeah. No, it was like from yeah. 1990, uh, June 94. Like we saw the movie fucking came out in 90. No, I, I would say more than it, nine years. In is May, what my yeah. Was. It came out in May. And by June, Jacko and I were doing it. And then uh, by the version we finished that like kind of had everything I wanted, it was like October 98. But I had hours and hours and hours of this kind of behind the scenes footage that that's what yeah. I then spent from about 1999 to 2001 sort of working on and developed a very specific and continuing uh, trope in my own life of processing my own life through this kind of external video of creative endeavors. It's very, that'll have to be a whole nother thing, but that's why the, 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 the timeline is so long, but anyway, yeah. fucking that trailer started all that motion and, and that's very crazy. literally like I, that trailer really changed my life. Okay. Yes. Changed my life indeed. Um, so you might have heard in some of the um, th some of the clips that have underscore music, those are uh, chosen by my brother uh, Moto to help um, kind of bring some energy to the conversations and uh, something we stopped doing. He did a, you know, for like a year. He produced everything as an album. We were putting on a show every week and just not able to do anything else ever. Um, which was, which was awesome, but, uh, we got a new workflow these days. And so, anyway, so I mentioned that because you can hear in some of these clips, um, some music from the band Trust Obey and, uh, and then a version of their song that my brother put together as like score music for our, uh, version of the, of the crow that we rescored to, um, to that to that band so i'm I'm holding uh you can see on youtube i'm holding the uh the graffiti designs edition of the graphic novel this came out right around the time of the movie and i, I procured it later and it's a beautiful like hardbound you can see the three nails there on the front um version of the comic uh oh man gonna get lost in this but it comes with this full uh, it's like the cds used to be in the early 80s sort of um this this uh really handsome uh, edition of Trust Obey's album Fear and Bullets. And it's basically a collaboration between John Bergen and James Obar. Um, and and uh, I think I talk about it a lot in some of the clips. Um, but uh, so I bring that up for two reasons. One is because uh, just in, in prepping the this episode, I came across John, I follow John Bergen on Twitter. He wrote the beautiful like introduction to this edition of The Crow, the 
that that uh, that I think is still included in the uh, special edition that came out in 2010 or 11 here, I believe. I think I question what year this was and one of the things, and now I'm really wanting to know. 2011, 2011. And does it still have, yes, John Bergen's introduction uh, titled In a Lonely Place, uh, Kansas City, 1993. Um, so he's still around doing stuff. He's actually doing a brilliant design work. He did a design for the soundtrack for Mandy for podcasts of our podcast listeners of ours will know we're big fans of that movie. Um, I'm a big fan of John Bergen. When I created those press kits that I was talking about earlier and that you can see on um, on davidalman.net slash the crow, in part it was to reach out to the bands whose music I'd included, which I believe, yeah, I'm sure throughout this uh, this program you've heard me talk about that. And uh, I heard back, I remember from Pitch Shifter um, saying it was cool how we used their, their song. And I heard back, of course, ultimately from... Um, from the people at Crow Vision <laughs> saying to knock it all off. Um, but I also heard from John Bergen, who um, created this soundtrack to the comic. And um, he was he was he was really cool and supportive of our of our, of our little movie. And uh, that's why I rescored it to the Trust Obey album, thinking perhaps, I don't know, I, I knew I couldn't do anything with it. I'm not sure why I did it at the time. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, and so I think I talk about in, in some of these... Uh, clips what ended up happening and how my brother made this uh this orchestral sort of version of the the ballad so um before we go out i'm going to go out on the ballad that my that my brother made to uh sleeping angel is that right <laughs> i'm guessing it uh but i'm so i find john bergen on twitter and um he, he uh in in the month of october 2018 coincidentally he put out these two EPs from the album Fear and Bullets, um, as well as the demos. This blew my mind. The 1991-92 demos of the Fear and Bullets uh, soundtrack to the comic. You can find on his um, Bandcamp site, uh, johnbergen.bandcamp.com, and you can you can stream them and download them. Um, it was amazing to hear, uh, this, this, this music in this raw form. Like he would basically, he was sampling some hip hop records. Like he had a two, you could sample like a two second drum loop and that's, you could see where the style of a lot of this came out of, um, uh, because of that. So uh, the 1991 uh, demo of Fear and Bullets, uh, the, what would have been the follow-up album, uh, called Sanctity Now, which features some, actually, I think even the demo features a song off Sanctity Now that has James Obart on vocals, like a kind of a Joy Division-esque vibe. And another one where he is called Slave Ship on Sanctity Now, where Obart's kind of singing, it's a little, I want to say it's like Peter Murphy-esque, like Bauhausian, if that's a thing. Um, a remastered version then of the 1994 uh, Fear and Bullets album and the 1997, uh, they remixed and did some things. Uh, Man After My Own Heart, this <laughs> John Bergen. Uh, they put out a standalone album also called Fear and Bullets of most of the songs and some reworked. Um, so all those are presented, plus these like retrospective EPs that add some of those, uh, like it's like th three tracks and one of them might be this extra score music for the comic. Oh, it's so cool. I can't say enough about how happy I am that these things exist and how cool John Bergen was to me and us back in the day with our adaptation. So um so again yeah i'm gonna leave you 
this would be like the dreaming out loud archive <laughs> uh outro except for this whole episode has been a dreaming out loud archive uh presentation i guess you could say so when i put everything together to kind of you know really tidy this up in my own mind <laughs> in 2005 uh i think i talk about this so that i have this like five disc edition that um was just like everything the for like a, a special edition of my movie all the different cuts the commentary i won't even get into all that exists on here and uh, it was really just for myself and uh i, I left the the front image blank saying i, th I think I, I say this in one of the clips but ultimately it was because of this podcast that i finished this uh front image and i kind of took inspiration from from this i was almost about to use this this lithograph that i got when i met james obar and then i remembered this photograph uh, there's very few like actual photo photographs of me and we were working on it particularly and a lot of them are from when i was still like 14 and 15 and while i look much older we weren't doing as well with like the wig and stuff anyhow i i i basically combined this photo of me with this famous panel of the book that was ultimately used and kind of painted in Actually, as you can see it at the remaking of the Crow uh, title card, but then it was the cover of this uh, Obar's uh, special edition of the book. Um, but so, Double D, uh, patron saint of A Long Walk, Short Drink, uh, asked for, for a copy of the movie. So I, I sent him this because he's a completist and he's a personal friend. I'm not going to do that for other people. Um, but I wanted to send him, a, I don't know, I wanted to, I wanted to put that, cover art there where in 2005 when i made this collection i i was like you know i'm not gonna do this unless obar himself draws it and so what i ended up doing is combining this i mean i didn't have photoshop skills back then so uh i combined this photo of me i superimposed it on i mean i know it was a reenaction reenactment of the painting anyway uh and so i came up with this double-sided <laughs> thing that i'll show you now so this one really leans heavily on uh you can see it on uh leans heavily on the painting but it's got you know my face mixed in there and then this one leans more heavily on my face than the painting and it's kind of i guess you could call it an illustration or a graphic illustration anyway that's also the a thumbnail for the uh the episode but so we're going to go out on uh, this montage that i put together for this dvd set that no one <laughs> will ever have of you know, we shot for four years. We started when we were young. Uh, we finished when we were just a little bit older. But there was so much stuff that wasn't used in the various versions. I decided to create this deleted scenes montage. And um, it's a lot of the stuff is like alternate versions of scenes with different cast. Uh, there's a lot more of, you know, there's stuff like with using Sherry as, uh, what do they call her in the movie? Sarah uh, with, this, you know, older actress i guess the actress ultimately the sherry the kid kid was played by my sister in the movie which worked for being actually younger than me um but anyway i put all this together and it's like it's in color i i was going to redo this <laughs> I, i've worked really hard not to make anything new for this <laughs> this little observance of the anniversary but i almost did a new montage of like the coolest shots from the movie that no one will see but then i realized that uh all the cool shots are in that uh, making of documentary and that love letter opening to it. So these aren't the best things that we did. It was something I put together as an amusement uh, for myself. Um, but you can see this then also on YouTube. Um, 
as I sign off here. And then of course the, the music that plays out is the, uh, the cover version of the, uh, of sleeping angel that my, my brother Moto did in 2001. Um, so that we could have, uh, like a, an original quote unquote score. So thanks again for everything. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Um, thanks to Palmer for indulging my uh, desire to do this. Uh, he and I will be back on the next episode doing our thing. Uh, I think we're going to be talking, um, explorers. I watched explorers to, uh, discuss with him as well as probably what we did on Halloween, etc. But so signing off for long walk, short drink, uh, Halloween bonus episode number 57. This is Dave. Thanks for listening. Thanks for watching. Cheers.